Be careful what you wish for. For a self-portrait, you may find it's not very flattering. Drop it! Duncan and both come correct. So, uh, you ready to get rolling here, sir? Of course. I was born ready. All right. Um, seems unlikely. The... <laughs> Fucking son of a bitch! <laughs> I mean, who is really, Duncan? Very few babies right out the womb seem ready for business. I came out and I was like, that point me to the mic, let's get this show going. You know what? All right. I'll allow it. Folks, welcome back uh, to Duncan and Bo Go to Westworld, a tiny little division of Duncan and Bo Come Correct. Um, at this point, I just do that introduction out of spite. I <laughs> know. That's why I didn't say anything. But... Then again, that's kind of the fuel for most of the things I do. I think you're rubbing off and on me yeah. in that way, Duncan. Like, yeah. <laughs> Spite and attention. That is it. That's literally half. That, that's <laughs> the two things that get me through every day. <laughs> it's like just a good recipe for life, really. <laughs> yeah. Just it's slightly, it's slightly more. It's like sixty percent spite, forty percent attention. So yeah, I, I mean, I think if we have advice to our listeners, it's just live so that the people that piss you off aren't done with you yet. Yes, yes, or 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 I like to like I, I like to in some way I like to feel that I will outlive all my enemies as well, and very much like Gore Vidal, I'll be able to piss on William F. Butley's grave. <laughs> Oh my god, that's the best! Like that's that's when you know you've that's when you know, like it's all been worth it when you can stand on the grave of your enemy and piss on it. <laughs> like I, like one of those ones you've been holding in for a while. One of those like really powerful yellow smelling wazes right on the top of that grave. Spent all all day prior to the cemetery visit drinking water and Gatorade and eating asparagus yeah. tips. Oh, yes. Now you're talking. Let them know you've been there. <laughs> Why does it smell like asparagus out here? <laughs> Why is Bo's grape so wet? Yep. Yep. The thing is, though, knowing how spiteful and attention-seeking you are, you would fucking love that. You would love to know that I traveled from Scotland to Nashville and taking a piss in your grave because, it, and I won't do it, Bo, because I won't let you win. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I what I want to do is I want to set up a video feed at my grave so that when you come to America to piss on it, I take a shot of that, and then using a Robert Ford style algorithm, I upload your dick pic to the entire web. <laughs> With the caption, cold day in Scotland, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Ransdell! <Right. laughs> ah, checking mate from beyond the grave. <laughs> oh, so good. So, so good. Oh, dear. Uh, so, uh, obviously, we're doing a show about Westworld here, Duncan, but before we get into, into that, uh, how you doing? How you feeling? I'm doing well. We literally recorded our previous one, what, three days ago? Yeah, but... So, 
you know. So you like have had you did a fast turnaround in getting that episode out the following day to give people a bit of respite before we were recording this one to put this out. So yeah, I'm doing I'm doing well. Um, my insomnia hasn't really backed off much in the way of anything that would be of note. That being said, not watched nearly as much as I did last time. I've been trying to instead do other things. Um, so I have uh, curated a full list of the Blu-rays that I own, um, not only by by obviously name, uh, but whether or not it's part of a box set, what the box set name is, if it's a collector's edition, who the distributor is, and I only have one column left, and that is director. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm an exciting person. Oh, yeah, right. oh, it's I mean, totally. Uh, Many projects are just like the. It's why I keep myself so busy over the summer with podcasting. We're ridiculous projects. Is I love sorting things out, and and it's just the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I I have a fairly elaborate movie collection as well, and I love management programs uh, for that stuff where I can like organize all my digital versions of of the films by Mm -hmm. the genre and even subgenres and put putting together my playlists and making sure that i've got everything cross-referenced right oh yeah i can go down that hole with you duncan (laughs) it's a good time that's right (laughs) tell you what if you you ever need to get away just let me know i got enough room for you here we'll just (laughs) spend a weekend doing nothing but sorting giallo films by director Oh, Bodon, honestly, there's only so much room in this underwear. It's not a cold <laughs> day in Scotland, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I, I've been doing that. I have watched a couple of things, which we'll, we'll touch on on the what we've we been watching uh, part of things. But yeah, out with that, just uh, living life. Well, living living life. How about yourself? Uh, about the same, about the same. I, I found... Uh... I, so I had to take my car to the 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 garage today. Oh yes, um, because it was doing a thing. It's only happened a couple of times, but enough so that I'm like, this probably isn't right. But just like at real <laughs> low speeds or idling, it'll stall on me for a second. And all right, yeah, it's probably just eh, some valve or spark plugs need to be replaced or some shit like that. But at any rate, so I had to take it to the garage. So I didn't. I didn't get to get out today the way that I hoped to. I kind of, I had to make a run to the vet this morning, and after that, uh, w- which the stalling happened again on the way to the vet, and I was like, "Well, shit, I got to take my car in." And that's always, no matter what happens, it's just like, "Here's two hundred and fifty dollars." I know that's going to be at least as much as you're going to charge <laughs> me for whatever it is that's wrong here, and just let mm-hmm. me know what more than that I need to pay you. That may be the wrong way to approach repairs, but. But- I, I, I was good. <laughs> because as a, at a minimum now, it's going to cost two hundred and fifty pounds. But they're not giving you change. Oh, you know I, I mean? don't. Yeah, I don't look for money back from that. I'm just like, right. this is where we begin. I know, <laughs> I know, because you're going to run the diagnostic, and then you're going to tell me that you had to replace something, and that probably didn't fix it, and that's about one hundred and fifty dollars yeah. deep. Yeah. Uh, I hate it when I hate it when the old strafen buffel breaks in your car, bro. Uh, right. Know, that, that, yeah, it's every time. Every time. It's the last thing you think would go, and then it goes. Well, it turns out it was just your air filter, but while we were in there, we went ahead and completely disassembled your engine. 
Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. What, I have to pay for that as well? That doesn't seem right. Right, and, and <laughs> that's the thing that I'm concerned about is that they're going to do some, like, well, we, you know, flush your fuel system and all that stuff, and then, you know, immediately it's going to do the same thing, and you got to go through the whole conversation. Like, uh, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not terribly... Uh, conflict prone. I'm not. I'm not big on those conversations. So I don't like it when I have to go to somebody and be like, "Hey, you didn't fix the thing that you said you were going to fix, and how about you fix that thing?" Yeah. <laughs> little little window into the soul, Duncan. Uh, but speaking of what we've been watching, um, I all right. So I made you a solemn vow. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm I'm just I'm just ready for you to tell me that you didn't keep it. I, well, I was gonna go see Hereditary today before we recorded, and I kind of told the garage story to say like, oh, I wasn't able to kind of drive out to the theater today to see Hereditary. Got you, and I'll be honest that that seems like a legitimate good excuse. Yeah, and hopefully everything will be cool tomorrow, and I'll go see it tomorrow at, at the matinee. But um, I did I did see the other film, and we'll talk about that. Uh, here in a minute. Oh wow! But, uh, I know. Did, did genuinely did not expect. Uh, it only took a year and a half, and you making a solemn promise in a podcast for you actually watch that. Yeah. yeah. And and but I did, I did. So we'll we'll talk about that here in a few. But first, uh, Duncan. Yes. Um, what have you been watching, good and bad, since uh, since last we spoke, or if if anything at all? Because as you said, it's only been a couple of days. Yeah, the only thing I've watched um, is the once again Netflix documentary series just consume my life, and it's a particularly long and interesting one called The Staircase, uh, which I've binge watched over the last like three days, um, and it's. Kind of in terms of the the lineage of this particular documentary, I mean, it predates the kind of wave we're getting now. So it predates things like Making a Murderer and all the rest by by quite a bit. So this was originally shot in two thousand and three, I want to say. Um, and for those who don't know, it follows the it follows this weird case of this American author who was married to this particularly wealthy businesswoman and they lived in their large mansion house together with his two sons, his two adopted daughters and his wife's daughter from another relationship. So this big kind of Brady Bunch happy family living in this giant mansion. And um, one day after they've had a few drinks and he's sitting out by the pool, he comes in and finds his wife dead at the bottom of the stairs. Hence, the staircase. Uh, there's blood everywhere. The police are phoned. The police arrive. Um, instantly, the police are a bit suspect about what's happened here. Um, and he's arrested for murder because the wife's head has what appears to be lacerations at the back, not consistent with the sort of injury you would get if falling down the stairs. Right? I'm with you. So yes, I'm with you, Duncan, and taking copious notes because you know I yeah. am a bit of an investigator <laughs> myself. So yeah, so they charge him with murder essentially, and um, 
it appears that very, very early on, this French documentary filmmaker got involved with the case and started documenting everything. So the original run of it ran, I think it ran like six or seven episodes from like 2003 to 2004. And it was released at that point. And then they kind of followed up on it um, because FYI got put in prison, <laughs> did get convicted for this. Yeah, um, oops. Yeah, oops. Um, so they followed up on it upon his release and subsequent retrial, um, which is the second half of the documentary. And I think there's at least one more. I think the very final episode was what kind of got on Netflix, if that makes sense. Because um, I think they like packaged it all together and Netflix were like, yes, we will put it out. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting case, very much like Making a Murderer. And I'm not saying that this guy is innocent, because there's plenty of suspect stuff there. Uh, most notably, when they find out that his two adopted kids that he has um, were from when he was stationed in Germany, when he was still in the, the military, stationed in Germany with his then wife. And they had like a, a best friend who were a couple that had, you know, two daughters. And the man left, leaving just the woman alone with the two daughters. And she died, Well, And guess how she died? Did she fall down some stairs? She fell down some stairs. So that seems like coincidental at, at least. Yeah. It's just the way things are handled in the case. Like you can clearly see the prosecution and the, 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 the township or state are very, very, very quick to start putting things out in the press ahead of the head of the trial, you know, kind of sullying a lot of, of the what you would see as being the uh, the, the presumed innocence before guilt, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a very interesting documentary because, like I say, at the end of it, I still don't know if I think he's innocent. Um, if I'm honest, uh, but it, there is clear impropriety on the the side of the the prosecution. I mean, blatant to the point that you're watching it and very much like like making a murder. You're watching it going, this is not right. You mean even like even you know even from a slightly biased angle, this is not right. What you're doing, um, and it's kind of laid bare for the audience. It's a, it's a fascinating documentary, uh, very Moorish. You you binge quite a lot of it, and uh, yeah, it's a, some really interesting, like really interesting character points uh, that happen through it. Where you're just like. I don't know if you know. I I think he's in, but I don't think he was trying. I don't think his trial was handled fairly. And what comes out very early in the series is that he thinks that they have it out for him because he would write a column for the local newspaper and had been doing it for years. And he was overtly critical about um, like the mayor of the town, the police, etc. And he'd been writing about them for years. And his theory was as soon as the police arrived and realised who it was. It was like, well, let's, we're going to get him back. Um, so, yes, high, high recommend for me. It's really the only thing I've watched. Um, I've watched about half a movie called Low Life, which I highly recommend. I need to finish it. So, but the first half is fucking mental. Who is in that? That sounds so familiar. And I can't think of IFC why. IFC have just put out. Yeah, IFC have just put out. It was like this darling film of the festival circuit. Um, okay. Last year or the year before, and the front cover has a guy wearing a kind of luchador mask. 
but it's all to do with um, like the black market and organ smuggling and um, like I say, I'm about halfway through it and I'm, I'm loving everything I'm seeing. I obviously still got to finish it, but if it keeps the pace that's going at just now, it's, it's going to be like one of these great little finds that everyone's been talking about in fairness, but I have found it. So, right. <laughs> it matters. Mine. Um, <laughs> is there, as far as the, the organ trafficking stuff in the film, is it is there a how-to component of any of that for someone, say, looking... Uh, to get involved <laughs> in sort of an attribute. For someone who, for, for someone that may have a large car bill coming up uh, from a garage, is that what you're ask me? Yes, yes, and access to, <laughs> let's say, a handful of organs. Um, no, there isn't. There isn't. But um, hmm. yeah, it's, it's really, it's really like from what I've seen thus far, it's really good. So. For the next time we record, I will have watched the the final half. But from what I've just seen off the front end of it, it's a high recommend for me because it, it's there's just something about it. It's just really, really entertaining, and there's a quirkiness about it that I quite like. Um, so yeah, that's that's me. What about yourself, Bo? Tell me what have you been watching? Uh, all right. So let me let me give you the bad one, which was pretty ludicrously bad. Uh, uh, yeah, this is one of those. Um, it is a, a movie entitled The Jurassic Games, or if you're from Europe, oh. The Jurassic Games. And <laughs> if you're from Europe, yeah, it's clearly Scottish. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's part of Europe. It is, but that's like saying all Americans talk like this. I watched The Jurassic Games. Yeah, that sounds like an American accent to me. That sounds like an American, right? That's the whole American's talk. Yeah. Uh-huh. And <laughs> so it, I, this is one of them, like, hey, Bo th- throws this on in the background while he's doing some other shit. Um, mm-hmm. But this one was noteworthy for being a particularly bad combination of, like, the Hunger Games, obviously. Uh, you got your Jurassic Park, but there's also a bit of Running Man in it. Um, oh, no. Yeah, basically the premise is, like, uh, this guy has come up with a television show where a bunch of uh, inmates of a prison have to fight each other as well as hologram dinosaurs, question mark, that just seems to <laughs> <laughs> seem to res out of nowhere. And... <laughs> Um, so yeah, instead of like in this Hunger Games scenario, it's like, hey, Sector 4 now has, I don't know, seven Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Run, everybody. And then shitty CGI dinosaurs show up and eat people. And it's, like, it's, it's wonderfully bad. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, I understand that you were going for this combination of more popular things. But these are not mm. two great tastes that taste great together. In fact, they're two uh, mediocre tastes that make each one stupider in practice. <laughs> and for for no, seemingly no good reason, the host of this uh, you know television show within the film wears this like saber tooth tiger helmet that obscures his face, and. It's just fucking weird, Duncan. The whole movie. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, 
the whole movie is just a, this like a series of decisions that are all either wrong or inscrutable. Mm-hmm. And I, I not recommend it. This isn't one of those like, hey, this movie is so bad. Like it's not a winter beast where it's like there. This has transcended yeah. cinema in a way. Like like the person behind it misunderstood filmmaking so much that they have accidentally made something artistic. Um, <laughs> this isn't like that. I would put Demon Wind in that category. I think that's a fine, fine, terrible film. Um, oh, you and you and Liam from Scotland, Liam are like championing this movie to a ridiculous level, and I still watch it. It's I you do if you've never seen it, you do have to watch it. Because that movie takes such like whiplash-inducing left turns at <laughs> such a clip that by the time you get to the end, you're like, I had no idea that where we, we be- where we began in this film was going to end with this elf person of light fighting a demon. And yet, I'm happy, I think. <laughs> So, you, yeah, if you haven't seen it, Demon Wind is it put it high on your list because it is it's hysterical at, at times, but also you just you can't. It, it's what makes Winter Beast good, which is that you don't understand what the hell the director was thinking, and like you don't understand how one scene logically connects to the next in some ways, and it's. It's just the best. Um, so that is the good for this week, Duncan, is Demon Wind. <laughs> which has uh, ma- magician ninjas and uh, evil dead ripoffs galore. That's that's a thing that happens in that movie. Oh dear, I'll get around to eventually. Yeah, eventually. It yeah, it's you know, there are legitimately good movies to watch ahead of Demon Wind, but you're gonna be happy you saw it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what was it? Jurassic Game. The Jurassic that- Games. Yes. Oh dear. Yeah. It's it's real bad. It, that's a real stinker of a movie, but kind of hilarious, too. Um, but let's get to the movie that you've been asking me to watch for low these many years. <laughs> Almost two years. Yeah, it has been. And so yeah. we can also sort of give a tip of the hat to retiring a running gag about <laughs> Bo not having seen uh, The Neon Demon. Because now it has been seen, and mm-hmm. I am I am here to report. I'm I'm proud to stand before you and say, Duncan, I thought that movie was okay. <laughs> oh, what am I gonna do? What am I, I gonna do? I just I just don't think I like. I, I, I don't think I like Nicholas Winding Refn. I, I just don't think I, I I I'm not picking up what he is putting down, Duncan. Um I thought his best movie so far has been Bronson, 
And I think that's because I like that Tom Hardy performance in it so much. Yeah, Bronson's really, but Bron- I think Bronson's maybe the least wind and reffing movie. Right, and that's why I think I like it so much. Yeah, is it's the least Nicholas Winding Refn movie he's made. Yeah, and I yeah I just I think his style. I, there is no argument that the Neon Demon is a beautiful movie. It is a great movie to look at. The colors are fantastic. I like the score a ton. You know, it's a little bit more of that synth wave kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um i just felt like yes this allegory is obvious um yeah i think it i i think the movie is too long by about 30 minutes ish because i I kind of disagree i mean my problem with his his films as a whole is that it's they're too ponderous. Like like you you establish this gorgeous shot, and we linger there for forty five seconds, and I after a while I'm just like I fucking get it. It's pretty. You're making a point. <laughs> let's let's pay attention to pacing for two seconds in the in any of these movies, and and I had the same reaction to Drive. So I, I just think it's a director who just likes not even a Kubrickian sort of like I am forcing you to watch this moment um, or a movie. Uh, I'll tell you another movie that uses long cuts that I really like um, is the movie a, a Ghost Story. I finally caught up to that movie a while back. Yeah. Ghost Story is really good. And, but there is a point to that where you have these incredibly long takes in the beginning of the film which gradually shorten over the course of the film to suggest the increasing passage of time for your central character. And it's, it's actually, I think a brilliant construction and, and the fact that the movie forces you to watch these scenes in uncomfortably long time, just to get to a point in the film where it's like, Holy shit. Like how much time has passed in the past 45 seconds? Jesus Christ, you know? And, so I think a movie like that knows how to use uh, that kind of shot, that kind of cinematic language. I think Kubrick does it really well also because there's just so much density even w- within those shots. Whereas I think with Nicholas Winding Refn, both Drive and, and I think even more so The Neon Demon – the number of times when I'm, I was watching a scene where I was ready to get out of it long before he was, uh, what, like that's a high ratio. There is definitely cool shit. That's why I'm like, I, I don't want to bag on the movie because I totally understand how someone would see it and, and be blown away by it. I think it's a visual feast for sure. It's just, I see. I, th- I think. Yeah. I think like people lean into that too much. I think there's a whole lot of substance to the story. I just pick out a lot more than what everyone else is picking out. Like out with just the obvious, you know, <laughs> allegory of the movie about you know the 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 the, the idea of the you know, the modeling business as an industry that consumes itself and consumes you know the the. <laughs> It's like I, you know, 
a dog eat dog world out there and all the rest. It's just the tip of the iceberg as to what is actually going on in that movie. Like I've got like I've got like whole theories about what the movie's about. <laughs> Yarns uh, and pins stretched across a wall, yeah. Yeah, like literally I I think it's like until the Suspiria remake was announced, it I think it's the closest we're ever going to get to a Suspiria remake. Uh-huh, yeah, I um, totally agree. Yeah. But I think it's because it's all about witchcraft. I think yeah. the whole movie's about witchcraft. I think it's uh, there's to me there's it's no coincidence that it's three women like a covering of three. Um, there the the scene where I mean right from the very start like the the this start of the movie has our um our you know our titular neon demon um getting her makeup fixed by you know the woman who will spoiler alert um the woman who will one of the women that will ultimately kill her and consume her who puts on a you know a a lipstick on her mouth which is called red rum mm-hmm. right bri- so i mean like from from that point it's setting up the whole premise of what's going to happen to this girl you know as as this this is the build up to that and I, I think the very similar to a movie like Suspiria, I think a lot of what happens in the movie um that you would might call lingering too long in a scene, I think is there in a way to I mean the colour scheme in the movie changes when she goes in the nightclub um and things take on a different turn. And at that point, you know, the, there is a there is an you know there is maybe a, on some level this idea of you know like even the character takes a twist at that point and has this witchcraft worked um i think some of the dialogue is is you know some of the best that he's had in any of these movies i think some of the performances as well are really off kilter i really like keanu reeves in it like every time he's on the screen i just want to have a shower um and that's totally against type for what a Keanu Reeves performance would be. I mean, he obviously, he got away with it much better in Neon Demon than he did in Knock Knock. Um, yeah, well, that but, character, like, at a certain point, that character's just never resolved. You yeah. Know? Like, we, yeah. we just abandoned that character at a certain point, and, and I, eh, yeah, that's it's, fine. It's, but, yeah, it's whether or not, like, that sequence, I don't think the sequence with him, you know, with the knife, etc., actually happens i think it's part of yeah i think it's part of the witchcraft to get her to come back into the fold Uh um yeah gina malone is kind of pulling the strings all along yeah i called it in the first like you know like you said in that first scene with gina malone it's like oh she's the villain of this movie yes yeah yeah, straight away like as soon as like as soon as as soon as you come on screen, as soon as like I, I, I'm preconditioned, I, like you mentioned Kubrick, I'm preconditioned that if any any time I hear the word red rum, I think murder. Um, so, but I just I think there's a where where you might call that lingering um, and maybe maybe t- taking too much time within a scene. I think it adds to the the kind of dreamlike quality of the movie and. I think it totally works. I think if anything, it aids the movie. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a from my point of view, it's such a compelling watch. I've watched, like, I've watched the movie what maybe about four times now, and every time I watch it, I see something different in the background. Just this other little detail that makes me kind of reconsider maybe what's happening in the scene. Is it happening? Is it not happening? Um, 
and yeah, between that and the Cliff Martinez uh, sim track, and you know, and then the visuals come back on the visuals at the end, and the very deliberate use of the Argento color scheme, and you know how beautiful it's shot. Plus the the cinematography of Los Angeles, which I think they use really, really well. It's almost Lynchian at times when you like you see when they're at that mansion with the the, the hot, you know the empty pool. Um, there's a Lynch-like quality to. I just think there's there's a. It's, it's not just a a feast for the eyes, which is what a lot of people I, I think just dismiss it as. I think there's some there's some really interesting story under the hood, which can sometimes be lost in the. And I'm not saying you're doing this specifically, but can be lost in that. Right, I get the I get the point. You know. Art eats itself. Well, well not even that. I mean, it's such an obvious riff on Suspiria that all the witch stuff I thought was glaringly obvious as well. Yeah, but I had, I've had to explain it to everyone. No one's yeah. no one's picked up on that. People are like, "Yeah, he loves he loves Argento." Uh, right to the point that he's Argento. yeah he's remaking Suspiria yeah, he's with it. models yeah. instead of ballerinas ballerinas yeah and, like, but, me, it was like from that i was like yay <laughs> but just without as good a central performance and kind of boring see i don't think i think our central performance is great i i i think Elle fanning is a snooze in every movie she's ever been in that i've seen and i don't think she brings any energy like i i wish there had but been some she... some kind of subtlety between her performance but before of like oh i'm an innocent you know oh i'm an airy girl who is elfin in many ways and i'm an innocent (laughs) i'm just off the bus and then by the end of the movie when she's making her like they don't i don't want to be like them they want to be like me kind of speech it's like i don't know that i ever felt like this performance was growing to this and I, i think it's just everything in her life has been effortless yeah, maybe so, but like watching someone that's, behave that's effortlessly as drama happens around them is just kind of boring for me. I, I again, I, I'm I don't want to unfairly malign the movie because at the end of it, I was like, that's that's a really well done, you know, combination of like it, it's Jan de Bont syndrome. It's like I I so wish. Nicholas Winding Refn was just a director of photography and he would be my absolute favorite director of photography. The fact that he insists on writing and directing his own films though, I've every single goddamn movie <laughs> except for Bronson by the end of it, I'm fighting to stay awake. It's you have need to, to watch it, only God forgives. I you're right. I probably do. That'll be our next neon demon, but it's just so hard for me to sign up for another Nicholas Winding Refn film now because the, the the last two I've seen I'm like it's fine I get it but I don't want to watch it again. Really interesting. I think he's got a really interesting take on seventies cinema. I think he's he's got a real. I think his exploitation chops are. I think he brings a. I think he brings a a, a very artistic style to an ostensibly uh, an exploit an exploitative decade which he's clearly fascinated by i think he marries things up in a way that just make me happy like, like he's, he's given me he's given uh, when i watch a like i don't even think drives his best 
movie <laughs> i think neon demons is the best movie and i think behind that i think i actually prefer only god forgives because to me it is like in the middle of that movie there is clearly a michael myers-esque slasher character just like a shape coming after people and he can't be fucking stopped and he can't be reasoned with and he is vicious and he mixes it i i don't know i find i find Maybe I'm just yeah. Maybe I'm just more in. Maybe I'm just more inclined to go with that. I I, I don't know, but I I I'm never bored watching these movies ever. I think yeah. there's always something really interesting to latch onto, and it's not always just the visuals. Which I know what you mean. If he was only ever to do, you know, DP work, I think he would be phenomenal. He's definitely got a very powerful, very strong visual eye. I just think the way that he puts forward his, in a lot of ways, it's like Lars von Trier. I think they they have an interesting way of handling kind of modern interpretations of exploitation cinema. Um, I think they have a really interesting kind of bent on it, which is different from everything else out there. Um, I think that's what I gravitate towards more than any. Is I feel like when I'm watching one of their stories. Like even I'm saying it's like it's like Suspiria, but it felt fresh and modern and new, and at least someone was trying to you know it was paying homage to the. Some people would say he was paying more than just homage, uh, but he's paying homage to Suspiria whilst at the same time certainly crafting his own vision around it, um, and all that stuff fascinated me. But the more I've watched it, the more I pick out. There's a scene where she's standing. Um, and it looks like she's just like putting her hands up to the stars. Uh, it's just before she dies, actually, out, outside in the swimming pool. Um, and you do a little bit of digging and a bit of research and stuff. Uh, the position of the moon, her hand movement, so it's all pagan symbolism. And I just, I, f- I find like when, when I'm starting to get, it's another thing for me to latch and go, right, so that's not just a pretty shot then. You know what I mean? Which is what everyone else is saying. Everyone else is like that. Oh, it's a really pretty shot. And I'm like, that. Nah, yeah, it's a pretty shot. But it's adding to the story. Once you understand, it. Now you could say maybe it's a bit too highbrow for audiences to understand. They might not know what that connection is, but you know, once you do, uh, you know, it either validates a theory that you have about the movie, or maybe it makes you think in a different direction. And I like thinking about movies when I watch them. There's a time and a place to switch your brain off for sure, but I do like starting to hypothesize my own theories. I, I enjoy is that art house sensibility about movies that I. I the older I get, the more I get interested in. Um, and I've heard plenty of people, you've probably, you've been around a lot this week, Bo, you've probably heard that there's a whole sea of people out there now telling us that Hereditary is one, not a horror movie, um, which is just fucking crazy. I honestly don't know what constitutes a horror movie these days for a modern audience, but not a horror movie. And, um, you know, too highbrow in the second half, uh, but at the same time, too predictable, which is oxymoronic. If it's too highbrow, how can it be predictable? Um, I mean, I don't make any sense. Uh, but people like, genuinely cannot follow the second half of that movie. And to me, when I was watching it, it was... I I saw no curveball that come out that was like that, right? I don't know what that means. I'm going to have to do a bit of research when I go home. To me, it was all pretty much on the screen and all the influences were there. Um, and I don't think it's that much of a jump away from... The same thing that uh, Nicholas Winder referenced in *The Indian Demon*. I think they exist in a similar 
a similar world. So I'm very glad you've watched it, though. I do think you need to watch Only God Forgives because that at that point <laughs> you can say you've watched them all. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um... Plus, I, I think that might be the that might be the one. Not from the because the performances are are fairly monotone deliberately in that movie. Um, that's a, that is a deliberate aesthetic choice. But the part of the world it's filmed in, so it's filmed in Asia. Um, you have all the the kind of the kind of it's not yakuza, but it's kind of what is it triads? Maybe tri- triad stuff happening in the background as well. And then the fact that at one point it clearly becomes a horror movie. It, it like so badly becomes a horror movie that I am surprised it has never made anyone's like horror lists. Because the, there is a there is a Michael Myers esque character in the middle of that movie who just is fucking unstoppable. It's amazing. I, I think it's great. I, I, I want I want I want to have that conversation. All right, give me a little time to lick my wounds from Neon Demon. Because <laughs> I, I I legitimately I went into it probably a little too excited to see it. Uh, because yeah. it, it had, oh, well, this is what happens when you wait a year and a half of me telling you how great it is, right? And I had it had been a long time since I'd watched uh, a Nicholas Winding Refn film, and I mm-hmm. and I forget that I don't really like his movies, <laughs> and so I started watching Neon Demon, and at about it was at about the forty five minute mark where I was like. Holy fuck! Has this movie been going on forty five minutes, and this is only as far as we've gotten? Uh, <laughs> all right. And uh, by the t- yeah, I think by the time she's doing the double dream wake up in Gina Malone's house, I was like, I just want this movie to be done now. Like I oh, see, I wasn't like that at all. I you know yeah, you had me for like if you could bring this in uh, at a cool a hundred minutes. And and you give me Gina Malone doing a fairly graphic masturbatory scene on a corpse. Now you got <laughs> something, all right. Now you got yep. some ingredients I'm interested in. Is that, it was weird, like because like once again that was one of those ones where people were like I don't really think Neon Demons like a horror movie, and I was like that. Excuse me. Well, is Necromantic <laughs> a horror movie? Clearly, clearly paying homage to necromantic i mean it couldn't be any more blatant you know and it with the the witchcraft and cannibalism in the movie i'm just saying it might be a genre movie that's all i'm saying yeah yeah i know i have no argument that i i truly think neon demon is as much a horror film as suspiria is yeah uh because i think they're essentially the same movie mm-hmm. but you know and that's anyway I, I don't want to. I don't want to beat this dead horse too much more. Other than to say, like, I, I'm glad I saw the Neon Demon. I think. I think it's a movie worth seeing. And I think if you are kind of into, you know, uh, Refn's pacing and style more than I am, um, yeah. Then, and I, I, tr- I truly think it's just a difference of artistic opinion in a way of like, yeah, the, his his style of filmmaking, while I think is aesthetically pleasing, I find narratively antiseptic in a lot of yeah. ways, and and that's that's not what I enjoy in a movie. I like a movie that's got a little more heart than brain sometimes. Uh, not that I don't like a smart movie, but. You know, give give me a reason to care about these characters a little bit, and I just never got that in Neon Demon. I never felt like any of these characters I 
I cared about it anyway. I never cared about the fate of Jesse. Um, it, I don't it think just you're felt, supposed to. Yeah, and, and and but that's where the artistic difference of opinion comes. Yeah, that, well, that's what that's you the know. big difference. That is the big difference in Suspiria. Is you want Jessica Harper to survive sure. her experience. Yeah, um, and 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 Neon Demon. I don't think Elle Fanning's character is supposed to be is supposed to be likable, really. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't think she is uh, supposed to be a very likable character, especially by the end of the film. But yeah. But and and maybe that's the reason I find it so tedious is because I don't I don't give a shit about the fates of any of these characters, and now right. now they're just events I'm watching happen on screen, and uh, yeah. and because I'm like, well, this is Suspiria. By the time we get to the scene, you know, at the end where the model's like, oh, I feel sick. And you're like, okay, so it's, you know, the curse from beyond the grave, but it's going to take us 10 minutes to get to the reveal of that. Yeah, because um, I think it's, it's it's about 10 minutes. I want to say it's 10, maybe at the most 15 minutes longer than Suspiria. R- right, minutes. right. Suspiria did it first, Duncan. They did it better. Um, my heart lies with Suspiria, the Neon Demon. Yeah, you, could, you, could, you could argue that in terms of a narrative linear sense, uh, Neon Demon makes more sense. Yeah, I, it's certainly more more linear, but yes. that's a deliberate choice by Argento. So yeah, but um, I, I but I also I, think that because you kind of give a shit about Jessica Harper in that film, the fact that you're you're lost in this dreamlike narrative where you can't be certain of anything. You're yeah. kind of along for the ride for her terror as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, uh, folks. That sounded smarter than this show ever likes to get. Um, <laughs> that show can be smart. On occasion. We've been smart. It was just before we started doing all the TV stuff. Remember that the highbrow conversations we had about particular movies? Where we were just like lavishing praise and going into the you know the the intricate detail, the the subtle nuance of performance and storytelling and whatnot, and then we did Twin Peaks and the funny voices started, and, and now we are beholden to that. Bob. <laughs> we're beholden to that for all time. If anyone ever wants to know what insanity sounds like, go back and listen to the first like season of Duncan and Bo Come Correct and then listen to us talk about season two of Twin Peaks and there is a clear it's like is this the same hosts? Yeah something has changed <laughs> yeah I think I think I think I think they may be crazy and you wouldn't be wrong you would not be wrong I was I was laughing at myself yesterday because you sent me the thing about uh like, hey, we've been friends on Facebook for five years now. Yep. And my immediate response was to send the movie poster Gaslight to you. Yep. I, I, I had a chuckle. I did have a chuckle. <laughs> it made me laugh. Like, like I, I wish, I wish I were smart enough for our entire friendship to have been a long con. <laughs> I don't have that kind of patience, clearly, given what I, I just said about the demon, but... What, what are you getting out the corn? <laughs> I don't see. That's the thing. I don't know. Sometimes you're just on the grift, Duncan. Sometimes you just got to keep yourself sharp. 
you know, when, <laughs> and then casually one day you'll let it drop like, oh, I have, uh, I have access to some geo something map of Scotland that I can sell on the black market. And then the con <laughs> is on. I, I think, like many other people out there, Bo, that you don't really know what I do for a living. <laughs> You've never been able to explain it to my satisfaction. I still think that you work for the mob. So, Baz calls me the Chandler Bing of horror podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my weenus and I'm not happy. <laughs> Oh dear! Oh, let me tell you a little something here. Bro. <laughs> this I is neither the time episode. nor the place. Peter <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> away. Um, I um, <laughs> I wa- I watched a little episode of the West uh, Westworld. I sat down and watched it. Uh, the one we're about to talk about, and I've come to the the, the decision that if ever there was to be a musical motif. To accompany this episode, it would be bounty, bounty, fucking metal as fuck, man. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of hardcore shit that happens in uh, tonight's episode, uh, entitled "Vanishing Point," Duncan, which mm-hmm. uh, you might recognize as a 1970s film. Yeah, uh, car movie. Uh, but yeah, about about the open road. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that seems like a uniquely American kind of film to me. The the kind of road trip car movie. Because everywhere yes. in Europe, it only takes you like 45 minutes to get anywhere. And, <laughs> and you just can't have that movie where it's like, hey, I'm going to get in a car with my pretty lady and we're going to drive west for three days straight. Because you just yeah, couldn't. That- it's your country's weird that way. Canadians are the same, actually. Yeah, where, like Canadians will like they, they finish up their work on a Friday and then we'll drive four hours to their cabin at the lakes. I would, I like to me a four-hour car journey is tantamount to you know like, let's let's take a bit of time here and put like cocktail sticks under my fingernails and then pull my fingernails out. That's how much I enjoy a four-hour car journey. Like literally, if I have to drive more than half an hour. I start to get angry. <laughs> like I don't want to drive. Like I, I don't want to travel that that far to get to anything. I, we've said it before on here. I literally, I fifty door. I can be at the car park to my work, and then it's a short walk down to my office. And that yeah, that fifteen minutes feels too far. So yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a very in, inherently American thing. The Australians have a couple. Um, out there about you know like because you know there's a huge part of that country that's just uninhabitable um but yeah it's an, an inherently american thing um, and to be honest i don't think it would work anywhere else because when i think of other movies that have tried to do the the kind of chase sequences and all the rest they just don't i'm thinking about something like the transporter um, right, like the Italian is, job or something like that. Yeah, they just don't have the same feel because you're in cities. You're in cities driving around constantly. You don't have that bit where someone has to hit the open road. Um, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, like like uh, like so, is it what Dirty uh, Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry and Vanishing Point and um, uh, you know that that ilk of film. Yeah, uh, Grand Theft Auto stuff like that. Yeah, like, but they have. Like, the, 
I was going to say Tarantino like captures it perfectly in the second half of uh, Death Proof. Yeah, yeah, those scenes of being out on like those country highways that are just two lane roads in the middle of fields and shit, and. Yeah. <laughs> And if you look at your right window just now, you'll see fields, and on the left, shit. Yeah, well, th- there's a lot of that around here. Like, there's enough farms even outside <laughs> Nashville here, where as you drive by, it's just like, smell that, everybody? That's shit. <laughs> That's good old-fashioned American homegrown manure. <laughs> That is an entire field of cows shitting all over each other. <laughs> Enjoy, everyone. How about a burger? Your a slice of a covered. apple pie. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah, a, a big old slice of apple pie, scoop of vanilla ice cream on top, and a big old previously shit-covered cow steak. <laughs> someone set off some fireworks and sing the american national anthem yeah yeah somebody light an entire sleeve of lady fingers and just grip them in your fist see what happens <laughs> <laughs> shoot bottle rockets at each other it's a good time all this stuff we used to do don't, don't worry if you lose an eye. You've got another one. Right. Until somebody shoots another bottle rocket at you, sure. Or or better yet, Duncan, <laughs> here's something we used to do that was super dangerous. Shooting Roman candles at each other. Flaming balls flying through the air right at your torso, Duncan. <laughs> That's American fun. <laughs> oh, dear. I like where all this conversation has went. <laughs> Well, Fourth of July is coming up. I'm already kind of putting together that mental shopping list of what I was about to say. Seems like you've got all mapped out. Uh, yeah, I got I got your Husker do's, your Husker don'ts, with with and without <laughs> the scooter sticks. I always like to slip in a little Joe Dirt. Um, <laughs> you know, fine cinema like that, Duncan, not the Neon Demon. <laughs> Movies I like. Movies that speak to me. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. Can you believe we are like... Can you believe we only have one more week and that's just done with Westworld? Yeah, that's crazy. We've... Yeah, like, it's probably worth pointing out before we take our break here. Um, Yeah, this is uh, the last episode, uh, or not the last episode, the penultimate episode, and then the next episode, and the next thing on our docket is True Detective Season 3. Yep, which is next year. Yeah. I know we'd kind of talked about maybe doing that Corden Brothers series, but we'll need to work that out, because if that's uh, it drops all at once on Netflix, then... I don't know what the pros and cons of doing something like that are, you know, when you can just easily, I I don't know if I can sit down and watch only one episode a week, if it's all available on Netflix, I'll watch it all. Or, or what we may do in that scenario is we'll watch it just like everybody else all at once. But my understanding is that's an anthology series. So we'll just just release an episode a week about that particular story. And, yeah, and so everyone can watch yeah, it out I'd their I've forgotten about that. 
Yeah, that's that's a good idea. That's a good idea. But yeah, out with that. Maybe some commentaries. But yeah, for uh, sure. I think Silence uh, of the Lambs commentary is coming. I, oh, I has to happen. Has to happen first. We need to get it out of our system. And uh-huh. there's a scene with there's a scene with Ford in this, and I was like, oh my god, you're doing Hannibal Lecter. This uh-huh. is the greatest thing ever. Oh, I, oh my god! It's like every now and again we are scarily ahead of the curve, but <laughs> like scarily ahead of the curve. I. I know we're pretty like we have said before season two Duncan and Bo are pretty damn smart um, <laughs> we are oh. I I gotta tell you a, a line came up recently speaking of the silence of the lambs um that <laughs> really gave me the giggles but somebody <laughs> somebody was talking about how uh, they, they had just gotten their nails done mm-hmm. and uh and and we're talking about like oh what a good job the manicurist did and I said, yeah, it looks like town, sir. <laughs> right? No one else laughed, but it, it really made me laugh. That <laughs> movie follows me around far too much. <laughs> and I, I just, like, it, like I, I sometimes, I, I, very much like yourself, I'll get a little fit of the giggles when it, there's an obvious joke. I want to make that I just don't because I know no one will get it. But then I look sillier by not making it because I'm just giggling away at myself. Um, but yeah, that like there's there's so much in that movie like that <laughs> just comes to the front every time. It's usually it's just, it's usually sarcastically as well. Yeah. When like one of the female co-workers comes in or something like that, like and everyone's commenting on our outfit or something like that, and you know the first thing that comes to the front of my head is you come in here with your cheap shoes. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Every time, every time, and sometimes you wear leather tall, but, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, clearly we're going to be doing that commentary where we just quote along with the movie. Like it's a sing-along chorus or something. But, yep. uh, yeah, but we'll do some commentaries and, and we'll keep an eye out for the uh, for the uh, Coen Brothers stuff. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah. drinking game, every time, every time, and every time during Silence of the Lambs, Duncan says the sentence, this is the greatest thing ever, you have to do a shot. Right. And also, go ahead and call <laughs> your doctor now. Because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're gonna want one on hand every every time you, it's you like want, you want to beef up that insurance payment to your medical board. Also, if you want to place bets on whether or not Bo will sing most of Chris Isaac's line in uh, lines in Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> you can go and invest your money in that right now. up there, we gotta go and get him. <laughs> <laughs> Hannibal did a bad, bad thing. <laughs> oh, All right, yeah, well, it's gonna happen. It's gonna yeah, be the greatest thing ever. That's a little tease <laughs> for a commentary that has yet to be scheduled at all. Uh, so enjoy, listeners, for uh, for a thing that'll happen. I don't know in a month or so, probably. Um, mm-hmm. All right, folks, but uh, what started all this was talking about Vanishing Point, um, if you'll recall, Duncan, which is the name of tonight's episode of Westworld, and uh, Duncan and I are going to talk about that episode right after this break. 
Are you sick of the same old stale podcasts? Well, then join Vanessa and David as they dissect movies of all kinds. The two lifelong cinema lovers bring their favorites, curiosities, and first-time watches to the operating table and inject them with a healthy dose of snark. Then there's the waiting room, where they examine books and short stories. So just look for them on iTunes, and where fine podcasts are available. They're part of the Legion Podcast Network. Follow them on Twitter at VDClinicPod or email them at VDClinicPod at gmail.com. They're ready to cure what ails you. And still, they just might be contagious. Get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor. Oh, we've been spending too much time together. I think we're almost ready for a season break. Welcome back, everyone. Let's just start right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tonight's episode is entitled Vanishing Point. Now, Duncan Webster's defines vanishing point (laughs) as the point at which receding parallel lines viewed in perspective appear to converge or the point at which something that has been growing smaller or increasingly faint disappears altogether. Uh, Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it is, (laughs) it is directed by, uh, Stephen Williams, who previously directed, uh, episode one's trace decay, uh, has directed oh. a little Ray Donovan uh, show I think you're familiar with, Duncan. Uh, oh, yes. Did some Walking Dead. Basically just been a, a television uh, director, but a lot of good shows. Like uh, did uh, The Americans and Agent Carter and uh, Lost. Did a bunch of Lost. Uh, did a lot of Crossing Jordans. Um, stuff like that. And uh, anyway... So, uh, you know, good on you, Stephen Williams, I guess. And, <laughs> and it's written. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. Mr. Williams, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> A director, but not in name. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that's a little rest of development. So, uh, Robert Petito uh, has written a. Uh, on uh, Virtue of Fortuna and Journey into Night yeah. from you this see, year. You listen, Boaz, what's interesting about his name is you see, What was his name, sorry? I was drinking some water when you asked me that, sorry. Roberto <laughs> Patino. You say Patino, I say Potato. God damn it, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> now I gotta delete all of this and we gotta start over. Oh, dear. (laughs) So, on tonight's episode of Duncan and Bo Go to Westworld. um, (laughs) No, so. (laughs) Bo ejects Duncan from the show. (laughs) Yeah, this is where we bring in the Duncan soundboard, finally. (laughs) It's fucking brilliant. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> Bo reenacts an actual vanishing point with Duncan when he disappears <laughs> from the show altogether. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, Roberto Patino has written a bunch of this season of Westworld as well as doing some Sons of Anarchy, a show that I think is not necessarily a great show, but I think it's eminently watchable. Um, I would agree. So, and a super entertaining show. I'll, I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Duncan, here we are. Episode 9, starting to wrap shit up. We got one episode left to go. Uh, when last we left our heroes, it was the episode Kiksuya. Um, Bless you. Thank you. And I'm carrying that over. Yeah, I like it. I was hoping you would. And that show was kind of this weird bottle episode about the character of Akechite uh, and and his relationship with all these other characters, and it moved the story forward some, but it almost felt like this weird sort of inhalation before things popped off. And yeah, Duncan things start popping off uh, here in this yeah. episode. What's really interesting though is I think this episode mirrors a lot of the previous episode. Like I think in a, in a lot of ways, this if we're being like if we're being upfront and honest here again the story doesn't really necessarily move that much in this episode either but it certainly moves the final chess pieces into the position they need for the final showdown episode but narratively speaking it it tends to look back rather than forward which a lot of westworld does and some of the best westworld episodes are that kind of looking back in particular this episode is primarily focused on William, um, and in a way which I, I I could not have been happier with what they did. What this did do, and I am very glad to see this, because Bo has been banging on all season about how this was the redemption of this character, and all along I said that this character was beyond redemption, um, <laughs> and I had been proved right. Uh, episode 9 dropped, and I was like, yep, I knew I was right all along. I'm glad that Bo spent so much time claiming that as his own, um, and there are several hours of recorded uh, podcasts out there now for prosperity of both saying that and I'm so glad that I did not join that camp and I rallied against it because um, we get some big revelations in this episode which are kind of awesome but what I love about this episode more than anything and we'll touch on it is the parallels in characters and parallels in scenes specifically with how the end the end result is very similar although the the journey to get there is different um and i i, I found it hugely fascinating um superficially it's a great episode of planet to talk about like i said before bounty, 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 right but this episode has so much under the hood that yeah we we just need to start unpacking this shit now bro. all right unpack the shit we shall duncan <laughs> Nice. We'll we'll disimpact these the bowels of this show. What <laughs> don't know where we're going with this, but with, let's that, <laughs> with the Vaseline of introspection. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound pleasant at all. And you have to listen to it, listeners. Uh, it's not pleasant, but it's thorough. 
<laughs> yeah, oh. every squelchy point. Um. <laughs> uh, so we open on William narrating as, uh, as we get some flashbacks to his wife's suicide, which we have heard a lot of talk about. You know, this was the thing that um, uh, Emily had blamed her father for to some degree. Um, it yep. is the the thing that you know drove uh, a, a dagger in Papa Delos Papa Delos in uh, his heart when he was a robot, and William was like, "She's dead, Papa Delos." Um, and it's the whole narration here is William saying there, you know, there was this stain in me this darkness and no one else could see it except for Juliet, his wife and his wife. Uh, uh, so we, we go to this big like dinner party uh, affair and his wife is saying, uh, you know, look, everyone's here for you, William. What, what could possibly compare to this? And we get a, a shot of Dolores, who is one of the, the, uh, waitresses of uh, this gala being thrown by uh, by William, and is it the uh, is it him assuming control of the company? I presume is is sort of the occasion here. I, I'm not sure because like, to me he'd assumed control. The member of the previous when when um, Dolores was playing the piano at that party, that was essentially his assuming control of the oh, company. Yeah. I wonder if this is like, hey, yeah, we've not- opened Westworld or something. But I, I th- like because I, I just assumed it was, you know, he just reached a level of success, whatever that was. You know, at this point, he'd, like, because basically, what, what they're they're all there to celebrate him, um, but there's no like real announcement on what he's done um, out with the fact that he's having this conversation with some other guy who misquotes uh, a philosopher. Plutarch, and he's, yeah. He, yeah, he's very quickly, you know, put in his place by William. And the guy's like that. Well, this is how I can tell that, you know, you didn't grow up with money. Um, because, like, if you were rich, you didn't have to read that shit at school. But, you know, you, you kind of poor street urchin, so to speak, uh, had to read it. And his wife comes across and she quotes from the same, the same kind of text the same same philosophy, and uh, she's like, "Well, you see, like rich people can read that as well, etc." You know, once again, reminding us that William has essentially ascended to this, but has essentially came from nothing, yeah, to ultimately run this huge Delos Empire, and you know, we we can see a spark of the attraction between him and his wife. You know, obviously these. Her quoting that to me like signifies, you know, on some level, kindred spirits, etc. Um, and once again, we get this snapshot of happy couple. You know what I mean? Very, very, very happy couple together. What could happen that is going to shake the foundations of this very what appears to be solid relationship at this point? And I there is to to me, it, it just feels 
like he's you know he's on top of the world or as the as the guy says you know it's, it's not just that you're master of our world it's master of many worlds now yeah you've conquered many worlds um and you know i i think at that point that's a nod towards you know all the different worlds within you know the the, the park that you know the dallas parks uh whether that's um a shogun world or a colonial world uh, as we called it, um, or you know, Westworld. He's 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 he is the he's the main man. He's the top dog. He's in charge of it all, and yet we get this impression from him that he is unsatisfied. Doesn't look particularly happy to be there. Um, his wife is clearly having the time of her life, but it's because she might have a drinking problem, Bo. Yeah. <laughs> She's got a drinking problem. She's a, <laughs> a drink enthusiast, Duncan. Um, but <laughs> yeah, she loves them all. Uh, but yeah, this is the, this is where we we kind of hone on is. So this is prior to him going back for his final run in the park. Yeah, where we saw him at the beginning of season one. So this is like him building up into this. This is the events that'll kick it all off. And and we kind of conclude his narration of this scene. With him, you know, after he sees Dolores there, he says, I wonder when it got in, this fleck of darkness. And yeah. he wakes up in Westworld, and it's after he's been shot to shit, and uh, <laughs> and his his daughter, Emily, is there, is forcing him to drink some water. And yep. we discover that she has taken him to what's called a rally point that has, like, a first aid kit. And uh, she says she's already sent up a flare for someone to come find them. And then they they have this conversation again about like sort of why why is it that uh, Emily is doing all this? Mm. And Emily tells a story about her mother, Juliet, giving her a jewelry box when she was a kid for her birthday. And it had uh, a ballerina in it that would spin around. And she threw it away because she uh, she told her mother, you would know that I haven't danced in years if you weren't drunk all the time. And, yeah. and tosses the gift away. And Emily says that, it, you know, it's, it was too late when I went to get that box back. The, the you know the the trash folks that come by they had already taken it away and they're bin lorries and <laughs> I was wondering how long it would be before that would resurface. Uh, it turns out tonight, Duncan. Um, yeah, <laughs> sooner than I thought. Uh huh. And and our listeners probably, but it was too late to to get it back. But but Emily says it's not too late for her and and her father. Mm. So, which doesn't marry up, like because instantly I'm like, there's something suspect about this because the way she spoke to Akechite in the previous episode, we all thought, yeah, she's gonna, she's gonna get him out of this park here and he's gonna suffer because that's what she said. And then you were also thinking, well, maybe she was just saying that to get him away from the Ghost Nation. Um. But I, instantly, I was like, "There's something going on here." I'm kind of with William in this, and that she's up to something. You know what I mean, there's right. something going on here. I don't quite know what it is yet, um, but there's something suspicious. 
Yes. Uh, she is clearly, as you put it, Duncan, up to something. Uh, <laughs> it, it is just ferreting out what that, uh, what that something is. Um, that's going to be tough. And I, I'm sorry, I keep calling uh, Grace Emily. It's Grace's uh, William's daughter's name. Sorry about that. Yes. And um, so we, we leave them for the moment. Uh, as you said, much of this episode is sort of about William and Grace, and we'll get back to that. But Dolores and company uh, are rolling up on our Ghost Nation dudes, who we now know are not the villains that they have always been portrayed as, but no. are, in fact kind of the good guys like they're the ones who yes they want to get out but they also want to get to the valley beyond in a way that you know does not bring bloodshed you know yeah they they, they see this as uh, something a little more spiritual and uh they tell dolores aka the Deathbringer, um, <laughs> who certainly lives up to her name in this episode bull <laughs> Man, you know, I've never had a good nickname, and Deathbringer is pretty good. <laughs> I'm just not sure how I can get that to work in. Listeners, well, just I go know, ahead and... But I, just, <laughs> I, I know how you get it, and, and all I'm going to say is you may have to do some time, though. Hard time, Paul. <laughs> never been afraid of hard time, Duncan. Except <laughs> for everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the lack of freedom and being cramped up in a little room all the time. That sounds terrible. <laughs> if by hard time you mean I get to sit down, watch lots of movies and podcasts, then yes, I'm all for hard time. It's it's not that. It's not that. Well, it's no. prison. No, I'm not for that. Not <laughs> right. That. It <laughs> no. turns out it's like, you know, bad food and threatening people all around you. Uh, <laughs> and I'm pretty, Duncan. I'll never last a night. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. You're, you're going to be passed around like a dog's chew toy. Uh-huh. Oh, I'll be the one crying first in the Shawshank scene, you know. <laughs> Someone made a mistake. I don't belong here. Sure, Deathbringer. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's when I get the nickname Deathbringer. When I'm crying on my cot that first night in the big house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ironically, yeah. Oh, right, right. It's the same reason I get called tiny. <laughs> you, you do the, the Matrix line, not like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, anyway. <laughs> so, but the, uh, our, our, our good guy, uh, Ghost Nation warriors are like, hey, um, the Valley Beyond is not meant for you, Dolores, uh, a.k.a. Deathbringer. And mm -hmm. uh, Dolores is like, is that so? Two woke Teddy, won't you drop a line, show him how it's done. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sure enough, Teddy goes fucking nuts and just starts murdering all of them. And there, you know, there's a yeah, little he, bit of back and he, forth. He, 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 he does the old ED two oh nine on this. You know, he, yeah. you have twenty seconds to comply and gives them like three, and then just fucking mows them down. Um, and in fairness, Ghost Nation, considering they don't have guns, uh, they do themselves proud 
eliminating absolutely every single one of Dolores, a.k.a. Deathbringer, a.k.a. Wyatt's crew of spooky hosts. Um, but, you know, they, they wipe them out and we have Teddy chasing down one of what we think is the last ones and Dolores comes around, puts a bullet in that guy's heart and she's like, you know, we need to make sure the area is clear. It's just me and you now. It's me and you. Uh, and you need to go and take care of Bee Snatch. Um, so uh, Teddy finds the original, the, the kind of the, the younger scene in the previous episode with the catch day, the one that had given the initial warning when Dolores had arrived, is still alive. And um, Teddy lifts his gun. And wouldn't you know it, Bo, very similar to what happened back at the outpost um, when Teddy was commanded to kill you know, the, the last survivor. Uh, Teddy freezes. He doesn't do it, um, even though he's now programmed to, you know, level eleven in badassery. Um, he doesn't pull that trigger, and that guy escapes. Uh, but Dolores doesn't know this, so yeah, the, thing. she doesn't yeah. see him uh, show mercy, which uh, is sort of you know I, my note here. In fact, is. The good in Teddy can't be denied that there is something, no matter how you re- reprogram them, and we see that a couple of times in this episode, no matter how many mm-hmm. times you reprogram someone, there is some innate emotional core to them that cannot be denied. Yeah. And and for Teddy, it is a sense of kind of decency and mercy that he's he's not comfortable in the role of the hard you know, cold-hearted killer. Yeah, the, the first time, I mean, we're going to hear the conversation later on, but the first time he opens his eyes, the first thought he has is not of himself, but it's for Dolores. It's the first thing he thinks of when he's activated. So, And that just speaks to him as a character. He's always thinking about other people. He's a kind, generous person who has unfortunately been used as a tool of destruction Um by a woman who is so hell-bent on getting what she wants that she has corrupted the one person that loves her unconditionally. Um, and, and I, I'm just going to say things might not end well in this episode for, for Two Woke Teddy. I think he, he gets too woke, Bo, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Two Woke Teddy. Uh, his path through this episode is pretty much Two Woke Teddy to Woke Teddy to yeah. No Teddy. Um, (laughs) spoilers. So at the Mesa, uh, for uh, Ford, uh, or as, as I like to call them Fornard, uh, which is the combination (laughs) of Ford and Bernard. Fornard's the greatest thing ever. (laughs) Um, he finds, or they find that Hale and her, you know, kind of spooky-looking tech who's been working on Maeve uh, have also been working on Clementine. And they yeah. make her kind of a typhoid Clementine who yeah. <laughs> has this virus built into her. That uh, yeah. Because we learned, you know, all these hosts sort of communicate with each other on this low-level frequency, this mesh network that allows them all to sort of silently communicate with one another. And it's how Maeve managed to get the host to do what she wanted just by looking at them. Right. 
Right. It's communicating using this uh, this kind of sub-channel. And they give Clementine this virus so that if she's around other hosts, it makes them uh, go bananas and start killing each yeah. other. Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, so, like, so they do a demo of it with a lot of hosts in the other room, and they just start mauling each other. One of them bites another one's throat fucking out and spits it. And I was just like, this is fucking gnarly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... actually savagely bites a chunk of his throat. It's sort of that crazies virus or something where it's just like, you gotta kill somebody now. It doesn't matter yeah. how you do it, you just gotta murder uh, it's pretty cool. And th- so they're going to release Clementine in- into the park so that every host she comes into contact with is going to go nuts and kill another host. And, and thus- if, you're me, if you're me, Bo, at this point, you're now thinking to yourself, this would explain why there was a thousand host dead bodies in a leak. Yes, arguably you could say that we have set the stage for the reason that we would have a bunch of dead hosts all at once. And, yeah. And then uh, Hale says, well, if this works, we're not going to need Maeve anymore. Yeah. And that's where Ford appears to Bernard in the Fornard uh, scenario <laughs> where he says, see, Bernard, they'd rather see them all destroyed than free. And uh, <laughs> Fernard starts heading for Elsie, and Ford tells him, like, no, no, Bernard, there's one thing left to do. And so we we leave them there for the moment. Mm-hmm. So we cut back to William, who is asking Grace uh, how she found him. And she says... You know, he says, you know, it's hard to find somebody out here in the middle of nowhere. You could be looking for weeks. And she says, you know how I found you? I looked everywhere. And he's like, all right. Seems suspicious. <laughs> yeah, it seems suspicious considering he pre the precursor to that particular part of the conversation is that you can spend months traveling in Westworld and not bump into the person that you want. Right. So... And so Grace starts asking him about the the project that, you know, her uncle Logan told her about uh, back in the day, this secret thing that, you know, he was working about. And uh, she says, you know, it was about some kind of control. And uh, William says it was never about control. Yeah. But Grace says, look, whatever it is, I want in. And... Which also seems uh, suspicious. Yes. From what we know of her, this... Well, what we think we know of her, this seems suspicious. Right. And and, and so we, we now have a flashback to fill in a little backstory between these characters. To kind of better understand the relationship between William and Grace. So we've cut back to the dinner party and Juliet, uh, William's wife, as played by Celia Ward... Uh, Shout out mm-hmm. to Celia Ward. Um, she's a little bit drunk, you know, getting a little chatty and sloppy around the party. And mm-hmm. Grace says to William, like, hey, I'm about to take off. You want me to take drunky McDrunkerson home? And yeah. William says, look, I'll handle this. Uh, just go on home and I'll take care of your mother. But before he does that, 
he is going to have a drink of his own. He's going to steel himself to deal with the bullshit that is inevitably ahead of him that night. And there at the bar, Duncan, he is joined uh, by one Sir Anthony Hopkins. Which, to me, just makes me so happy. Like, it makes me so happy because we have been lacking a scene of Ford and Ed Harris for a while now. Um, and, you know, the last time we saw them, they sat, funnily enough, at a bar, um, consuming, wait for it, whiskey uh, in Westworld. And, you know, we get, like, Ford basically is... is, is <laughs> What I love about Ford as a character is that from from William's perspective, he always thinks that Ford is up to something. There has to be some sort of game behind it all because he basically says, you know, um, you know, how the puppets work without their master or something along those lines. Um and, you know, Ford's like, Well, you know, I'm just just here to you know join in your celebration and congratulate you, and he's like you know I find that kind of hard to believe. We have an arrangement here. The deal is that you keep your nose out of my project, um, and you get to write all the little stories that it's very dismissive. William is all these little stories that you want to write. That's your thing, and you know the project's my thing, and we don't speak about either. And then Ford makes a comment about, well, you know. It, that 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 deal's been broken. Something to do with his brother, which they didn't go into any detail with. So I'm not sure what that means, and I don't know if we'll get any answers with that. But it did seem like I didn't mishear that. That's, no, I think that's what he said. Your brother said something. I, meaning Logan. Uh, I thought Logan was dead. Right, uh, or maybe not at this point, or something. Maybe he lives longer than we thought. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's been talking anyway. So you could maybe assume that maybe that talking is to Grace potentially, um, or talking to someone. I don't know, but that Ford makes that point, um, and then <laughs> they, they, you know they obviously continue to talk, but then he slides them this this uh, data card thing. This well looks like a credit card made out of steel, but apparently it contains. William's profile, the, the data that's been gathered on him whilst he has been in the park. And, um, you know, he basically hands it to him and, you know, in no certain terms tells him that he will not like what he will see on this uh, as a summation of who he is, regardless of how he's clawed himself up from the, you know, the, the slums, so to speak, to be the CEO of this massive company. Ultimately, um you know, the, the profile, the, the part of him that's been captured, i.e. if they were to bring him back, do you imagine all these things are creating the, the temporary profile of someone to come back as a host? What would come back representing William uh, would be the man he is in the park minus the mask that he has outside the park, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, the whole idea of Westworld being the place where, you know, it reveals your true self, uh, as William has said, that he is now forced to confront, you know, the fact that he is such a villain. Um, yeah. And, and more importantly, that this information is now available to people who may not be William, 
uh, which we'll get to in a moment. But so it, William sees a drunky stumble outside <laughs> again. And I was going to say as well, um, do you not think it's really interesting, interesting as well that William says the sentence, you know, about you, you keep your nose out of my little project and I'll let you do your narrative stuff. And, you know, we keep our nose out of that. Yet the whole season and the previous season has been William's, from William's perspective, his pursuit into what he thinks is the hidden narrative within Ford's games. Well, as we're learning, Duncan, maybe that game is a much larger game. Uh, yeah. But, and, and in fact, as William leaves the room, Ford even says, one final game, William. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime Anthony Hopkins looks at you and says one final game you are fucked I don't care if he's <laughs> smiling and offering you cold lemonade on a warm summer day Duncan in, in a pastoral garden Johann Sebastian Bach playing faintly in the background on stringed yeah. instruments. Yeah, it's it's always it's always that combination of ready when you are Officer Pembray. And uh -huh. um, I'm about to have an uh, I'm about to have an old friend for dinner. Uh, you know, it's yeah. that combination of yeah, bad bad things are gonna happen. Even that even that I'm gonna have an old friend for dinner, you you've taken that line and you've corrupted it in such a way that yeah um poor poor little uh, what's his face is about to be eaten. Um can't remember his name now. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on Ah box. It doesn't matter, but, Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll be doing doesn't that matter. commentary soon enough. We'll we'll get it all I can't wait. Chilton. Yeah. Chilton. Yeah. Oh, trace my brain. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like so you are fucked. <laughs> but he says that. And yeah, th th then you get the impression that right from this point, Ford has because once again, what's like, I'm kind of hoping we get the answers to these questions, but at the same time, I'm hoping on some level that we don't, because the game that the game that I think he is on about is the game that we're playing now, which is not the game that William played in the previous season, where he accidentally stumbled across the symbol of the maze, because Ford didn't want him to do that. Yeah. Um, well, or, I. Mm. Or did he? Mm. Is, you know what I mean. Yeah. This is the thing that I, I. This is the thing that I don't know, and this Here's, is what I like. Part of me doesn't want that question answered, but part of me wants that question answered. All right, I've got a theory about this. When we get to the end of the episode, I, I will tell you what my theory is, which feels backed up enough at this point that I don't even feel like it's really a theory. But we'll nice. We'll we'll do this. Uh, anyway, so we leave Ford being threatening to go to Fernard, who is still in the Mesa, and they find Maeve, who is uh, locked in the room. You know, she's still kind of cenobite, cenobited open uh, as they're keeping her uh, restrained and she can't speak and so forth. And uh, had to hear it from your own lips. Uh, to think I hesitated. No, I know. Oh, that movie is so good. So, anyway, um, <laughs> Hellraiser 2, y'all. Uh, 
You need to see it. Get on it. If you've never seen Hellraiser 2, even if you've never seen Hellraiser, watch Hellraiser 2. Um, but uh, anyway, so Bernard <laughs> tries to use his hand to get in, like scans it and gives him, you know, the my voice is my passport. Verify me. And yes, he, but he can't get in. And uh, uh, Ford tells Bernard, don't worry, Bernard. I've left a message. She's scanning your brain right now. She'll mm-hmm. get it. We can fuck off now, Bernard. And <laughs> and so uh, off they fuck indeed. Yeah, they where fly, 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 both, fly, 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 fly away, little starling, fly, fly away, fly, fly. I know they'll never ever li- let me leave, Bernard, again. Um. Anyway. <laughs> That's where Ford exists inside, uh, inside Bernard's head in, in that cell. Uh-huh. <laughs> the perspective. <laughs> They're all painted from memory. That's all I have anymore. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scene from the Bell of the Day. <laughs> all, all that detail from memory, Dr. Lecter? Yes, memory ha- is what I have now. Instead of a window. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Before this turns into the commentary, uh, Fernard goes to find Elsie, who is in like the garage, uh, securing one of, one of these dune buggies. And Elsie is telling Bernard, "Like you've got to be honest with me. What the fuck is going <laughs> on?" Like, slightly paranoid, knowing that like. In previous times, Bernard has locked her in a cave, so <laughs> she's right. Just, she kind of wants answers. I'm with her on this one, and Ford is not for it. Ford's like, "Don't trust her. She'll betray you. She's like all of them. Don't tell her anything." And I don't know. Well, I do now actually because they explained a bit later, a bit later on. I don't know if what he said to her was to use her to basically get out there, always knowing that he was going to leave her. I don't think I, I don't think he had planned that far ahead. I think he was being yeah. honest with her because he's serving two masters here. He he's telling her just enough that she trusts him because he he reveals the thing mm. about the forge. Like, hey, the, you know, the, all the hosts are headed to the forge. We need to get there first because if they get access to that information, it's data on everybody. Like everybody that's ever been in the park and not the hosts. Which yeah. is what the cradle was. That was all the the backups of the host. The forge is, hey, we've got all these personality profiles, and yeah. anyway, and 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 France, Bo, and France, he is the engineer on the Enterprise. That's a very witty joke. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> but um, but the but other our, the other our mass- French our French Star Trek listeners right now are pissing themselves laughing both sure all three of them George George the Forge is is what you're saying the Americanized yes. version would be yes all right but at least we've got a name for this now so we now know that this is called the Forge this is where all the data is being you know um, collated and kept. Um, and this is where we 
we now know also confirmed in this episode that definitely Dolores is going to and definitely William now. Yeah. Uh, where in the past I, I thought William might be going somewhere else. Um, it's been confirmed that's where he's going. Yes. And uh, the the thing, the other thing I was going to say about this in terms of serving two masters, not only is he bullshitting Elsie to some degree by giving her enough information to get her to keep going, but also leaving out, hey, I got a Ford stuck up in my brain. <laughs> It, it is also serving the other master of Ford by not revealing the whole truth and yeah. Ford's seeming plan for Bernard. Uh, so yeah. then we leave uh, them on their way now to the Forge where we've got William and Grace chatting again. And Grace is asking him about like this big project, which we know, of course, is that Westworld has been collecting information on all its guests every time they come to visit and grace says well grace uh says sorry (laughs) says they'll they'll need uh i don't fall into rear window much but it happens every now and again grace get in here um such an obscure, such an obscure reference that you have to explain it. I, <laughs> I love these little, these little cards. You just the way you're like in Grace. So it's like Grace. Yeah, and it, but it, it's just my shitty Jimmy Stewart calling Grace Kelly into the room. But it's also a reference to an episode of The Simpsons where that thing happened. Um, ah. Yeah, it's it, it's deep. That's why this show is so smart, Duncan. Um, yeah, season two, Duncan and Bo, deep. Yep. Uh, smarter than <laughs> 10 Stephen Hawkins. <laughs> so. so <laughs> if you're going to upload anyone to a supercomputer, it would be Stephen Hawking, right? Like he's he's well, halfway there already. I, I'd like to think he's there now. Remember, he died. Yeah, I'm aware of that. I think he is. I, I think someone did that beforehand. Like, like, we never watched it, but had we watched that final season of the X Files, there was an episode that covered that sort of thing. So I heard. Yeah, but let's let's not ever speak of that. Not because we watched it. Certainly not. We're not fools that way. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah, I mean that's some shit. Season one of Duncan and Bo go to Westworld. Duncan and Bo <laughs> would do. Um, <laughs> not season two, Duncan and Bo. We're we got shit going on, but uh, mm-hmm. but, all right, but so Grace is like, well, you in addition to just interacting with the host, like you would have to get cognitive patterns, like you would have to kind of scan their brain waves. And William says, "Well, we did," and he he kind of <laughs> gives a tip of the hat, and it's like, oh right, they're all wearing these cowboy hats and shit and bonnets and whatnot. And they put the scanners in there. So every time you're wearing a hat furnished to you by Westworld, and let's not forget when you get there, one of the things they, they ask you, you yeah, they, they ask yeah. you to pick out your own hat. And Which to me, once again, is just like, uh, this proves how well written this show is, that we can remember that from right back in the very first episode of Westworld. Well, that's just such a throwaway detail. At the beginning there, but it all makes sense now. Yep. And 
so they've been capturing not just the interactions with the host, but also what's going on up in the in the head uh, yep. for for the folks paying to be here at Westworld, and uh, presumably the other ones as well. And she says, uh, you know, the, the reason that I want in is because I want not to recreate my mother. I just want to be able to ask her why she did it. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is reference to uh, her committing suicide. And then we flash back yet again to the night of this party that runs through the episode where William is, in fact, taking his wife home. And she is drunk. And <laughs> Just a tad, bull. She's doing the whole, I'll drop won't let you pick it up. I will pick it up. Uh, right. <laughs> Women do that every now and again. It confuses the fuck out of me. And they, get, they get mortified when you don't ho- open a door for them, but when they're drunk and they drop something, they will pick it up and not you. Sure. Fuck your shit. I away. can do it. <laughs> You're not <laughs> so big. Uh. <laughs> well, it must be, it must be cold in Scotland. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So. So he, you know, he's kind of putting her in bed and, and she says, uh, to William, well, they don't even get, they don't, they don't even get that far first. So basically the argument spills out downstairs and she, she instantly goes on the kind of on the offensive by, you know, saying that, you know, the first time I met you, you know, you were, you weren't like everyone else. Everyone else was stuffy and rich and, you know, they were all made up. And the first time I met you wearing this not great suit, which didn't really fit well. And, you know, I, I knew you weren't like them straight away the first time I spoke to you. Um, but now I know different. Now I know that you're you're worse than all of them because you, you know, you, you don't, it's not just that you're, you know, like them, but you're, you're ruthless beyond their points to the, the thing that I can see, but no one else can. You hide it so well. They can't, they can't hide it because that's who they are, but you, you can hide it, but I can see it. And he's like, right, sure thing. And she, she, she just goes off on one of them. And it just so happens that while they're having their argument, he had invited his daughter back for like a nightcap and she shows up just as she's throwing abuse at him and she walks in and the you know the mum's like oh did you invite her back here to watch the spectacle and all the rest and then we find out that she's been committed to rehab in the past um and it sounds like she's been there more than once she's exited the program each time uh, but now that the daughter's once again recommending that's where they go you know that she goes back there you know and, she gets upset about it. Grace is like, no, this is for your for the best. William takes her to bed. And, you know, is very caring for her. You know what I mean? He is he, he's very... Well, like, he his is... His daughter's not in the room. You know what I mean? And she's drunk, but he is looking after her. Right, but it's, it's the habit of that fake authenticity. You know? Yeah, it, it's it, the it, mask he wears. Yeah, so... And it's explained very well later on but he hides his stick that ford gave him in between a couple of books goes downstairs continues his conversation with grace who basically says that 
you know, she always like leaves before the end of her treatment, but not this time. Aya basically said that they keep her in until she's clean. Right, we'll we'll, uh, we'll commit her, and therefore it's involuntary. She has to stay until the treatment is done. Um, a couple of sick uh, burns here that I would like to give oh, highlight yeah. to. One is mm-hmm. the thing about the authenticity that you mentioned of uh, you weren't. It's not that you weren't. You were authentic. You were just better at everyone else than at faking it. And yeah. and good enough to get past me. And I thought that yeah. was a pretty good burn. The other burn that I dearly love <laughs> is that she calls... And this is where Grace originally walks in to hear this little tidbit. Where she says, William is a virus who consumed yeah. her family from the inside out. Starting with Logan and now and then her father and now her yeah. and eventually her daughter and that's the point where Grace is like whoa 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 how about <laughs> yeah. we take she's off like, the gloves she's for like, a second whoa, whoa whoa sweet child of mine yeah uh, well we have none of that here i can speak for myself and if anything it's you that's disrupted this family and and it's an interesting point because she clearly doesn't know that william has is indebted to her dad so much that he's been trying to bring him back in the background because he's not had that final conversation with Papa D at this point. Um, that's not happened yet because we know this because in his final conversation with Papa Delos, he tells him that, you know, Logan's dead and and your daughter, you know, she died as well. Um, so that's not come up yet, but he still hasn't said anything about it because he obviously doesn't want to, to give away the secrets of the park to his wife. But he is kind of... And it is that sort of thing where, you know, you consume my my family from the inside. Did he? Did he really? Because I, I was thinking about this. Like, obviously, she fell in love with him. Logan was already a drug addict beforehand and, uh, you know, a fairly reprehensible guy who really was bested at his own game and then left out in the sun by William. Yes, we can say that maybe drove him mad. But he was already on the roads there. He wasn't the nicest guy. Papa D wasn't exactly the nicest guy either. And the smartest decision he ever did was investing in William. Um, Right. And William kind of feels like you get the feeling that had that project worked earlier, than that final scene, you know, had it worked like the previous time or the time before that, I think William would have been okay with, you know, Papa Delos being up and around as fulfilling his his obligation, so to speak, his, his sense of, of duty towards a father-in-law and mentor. Um, it's only once his wife commits suicide and we start to learn a little bit more about the mental status of our, our, our good buddy William, which we'll get into a bit of detail later on, that really gets to the point where it's like, what's the fucking point? You know what I mean? I'm not wasting any more time and energy on this this little project for you. It doesn't work and I don't care. Um, I'm going to leave you <laughs> as you left her marooned inside a dead planet. Buried alive. Um, God! <laughs> But it is is that thing where, yeah, William's not a nice guy. Yes, I think he definitely 
shone a spotlight on the many cracks and seams that were in that family. He's certainly a catalyst towards it. Yes. But all these people were deeply flawed to begin with. Uh, yeah, um, I think that's right. I, I'm I, not sticking up from here, but I, I think she's unfairly maligning him as the, you know, as the ruiner of worlds. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> the, I, I, right. Yeah. I think I think she's exaggerating it, but also I don't think he did anything to help any of that. It's just that no, no, he was not going to be absolutely. He was never going to be the cement to hold this family together. He was just always the ambitious young man that was always being told that he wasn't quite part of the crowd. And his way to become part of the crowd was to eventually own the crowd. And that's what he's done at at this sort of gala. And even somebody gives him a little bit of shit there. So, yeah. So you know. he's still not been even after all his achievements and everything that he's done uh, a celebration and party for him. He is still looked down upon by certain people, yeah. Um, which I think is a, like an infinitely interesting point because when he's in Westworld, it's the exact opposite. When he's in Westworld, he's master and commander of his own domain. He's the man to be feared. He's a, this force to be reckoned with. Um, he's this unstoppable, you know, force within the park but outside of that he is the he has this kind of placid dutiful husband veneer which he wears and he's you know he's he's he's, he's respected for what he's achieved but he's not respected as a as a person just that he's respected for his accomplishments as opposed to the individual himself which will you know put a chip on the old shoulder if you know what i mean uh, but when you see who the People that came from that background that had everything, you know, in the palm of their hands. Logan fritter that away, uh, fritter that away. Um, Papadellos didn't really fritter away. He worked quite hard, it would appear. Um, but his wife has, you know, drank herself into oblivion. Uh, and so when he comes downstairs and has that conversation with Grace, he kind of sits back and kind of mulls over what they're going to do basically in terms of, you know, she's going to go away again and, and, and whatnot. And then he realizes that the, the chandelier is dripping water, which prompts him to that scene that we saw in previous episodes of him running upstairs, opening the bathroom door and she has cut her wrists in the bath and she's dead. Uh, So this fills out just the events leading up to the point that his wife died. However, we will be returning to fill out some more detail shortly. Yes. Uh, so in the meantime, Duncan, we, we cut back uh, to camp after the discovery of the body. And that's where William asks Grace point blank, like, what do you want? And she says, I just want the truth. And that's where William immediately begins to think that she's a host again. And yeah. he goes back to the old, uh, you know, you're giving your cards away. Ford. Right, it's you beneath know, you, Ford. Yep. And she's like, what the fuck are you on about? I am your daughter. Um, and, and nothing to do with Ford's programming. And it, and then she basically, like, finally, she does the old, uh, as I like to call it, the Jack Nicholson from uh, A Few Good Men. <laughs> you know, you got damn right, I ordered it! Yeah, well... <laughs> With a bit where, like... <laughs> 
Coolidge would just spill the beans. Um, I, I, it's kind of wonderful how she does it. Yeah, well, I like the moment where she's like, look, dummy, I'm not a host. And the way she puts it is, I'm a daughter pretending to give a shit about you. And, yeah, and he's the, like, huh? Yeah, and, and she's like, you know, you want the truth? And the truth is that <laughs> she's going to expose all of this. And, yeah. uh, right. That like, she, she kind of spoke the truth to a catch day of let me take him out of here and I'm going to bring him up on charge. Like we're going to ruin his name, his fortune. He is going to go down for all of this. And, you know, obviously she can't explain that to a catch day, but I think that's her plan as, as it's revealed here is I'm going to ruin my father to the point where she says, I'm going to see you locked up. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, again, you know, William is having none of this. He's like, ah, good one Ford. And then some, uh, <laughs> some of the uh, QA dudes, the, uh, the security team, uh, shows up and they recognize him. And yeah, well, they, they show up because she fired the flare. She said that earlier right. on, she fired this flare. This is him now showing up. And like, she obviously goes down on the ground and, they they start walking across and the guy's like, oh shit, this is the boss. This is the boss. Um, and they scan using that device they have at the back of his neck, confirming that he's human. Grace, unfortunately, for her point, says, you know, he's, he's, he's unwell, he's mentally unstable um, and all the rest. And they, you know, they turn around and say, is, is any of this true? And this is kind of the last straw for William in this scene he's he's at death's door he's not feeling too hot he's kind of had enough of this bullshit he's convinced grace grace is a host controlled by ford in fact he's convinced everyone's a host bull everyone is a host he sees hosts as far as the eye can see and um that might mean he has to act on it right and grace says hey i can prove how i know all this stuff about you and reaches behind her, which is never a good move, but Dude. reaches behind her and starts to pull something out. And William flips out, grabs the gun from one of these QA security dudes, shoots him, shoots all the other security guys. Yeah, it's kind of bitching. <laughs> right. And then shoots her too, shoots his daughter, Grace. Yeah, turns right to the camera and says, and keep that change, you filthy animal. <laughs> um. Well, and, and so he kind of kicks her over, and he's like, eh, got one, almost got me that time, Ford. And then he realizes that what she has in her hand is the data card that Ford gave him low those many years ago now. Well, yeah, in she says that she says that that's how she knows, that's how she came to believe her mother wasn't, you know, this drunk, crazy person, is that... You know, her mother managed to somehow pass this card on, and that's she had she explained it a bit better, right? Um, she may still be alive, but in William's mind, that card was exactly where it was when he left it. No one saw it apart from him, so there's no way that she would know that. The only two people that should know that are him and Ford. Which right. means that she must be getting controlled by Ford. Um, had she just explained it a bit better? Um, and a scene which has a degree of poignancy as well as to where she actually finds it from. 
um, which we'll get to in, in a little bit. But yeah, he, he, the, the, the sinking, crushing realisation that he's just murdered his daughter in cold blood in the park. And also, he might be going a bit mad. Well, it's like we've been saying all along this season, Duncan, that <laughs> the oh, character of William was beyond redemption, that we could never yeah, have reasonably expected that he would be a character <laughs> that found a happy ending or somehow saved the day or anything like that. He was always no. deplorable, and uh, uh, and we've been right all along. Yeah, and, and ultimately, what what has happened? There's like so much awesomeness about the parallels in this episode that we're going to get to. Because there's there's like by the end of this, I'm going to set up a probably three distinct parallels that are running with characters, but from different sides, which I think the show has handled masterfully uh, to the point that you may have just went over the top and not realised them, not you personally, Bob, but our listeners, um, may have just not picked up on it, which I think is just fucking exquisite on this TV show. But yeah, he's, um, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's gunned down his daughter uh, and now he's going to get himself the bullets. He's going to finish his mission. He's going to go to the forge. Boss. So he's going to grab that vehicle and drive. And that's what he does. Yes, having, you know, murdered his child, uh, which yes. is now lingering in his thoughts after he sees this data card of like, oh, I didn't kill a host. I killed uh, actual Grace, not Grace Bob. Yes, um, not Grace Bob. But uh, although I'd like a sassy Grace Bot, I think. <laughs> someone, someone Season just three, get that one up. Uh-huh. Um, it, back to the Mesa with Maeve, uh, which is a new show on the Home and Garden channel. Uh, yes, Mesa with Maeve. This time she's pruning her tomato plants. She says tomato. I say tomato. Let's turn the whole thing on, Duncan, for this new season <laughs> of the Mesa with Maeve. Um, so she hears Ford's message that he's left for, which is Ford just kind of wandering around a room saying, which is Ford, yeah. That's is actually in-person Ford message. Right. It's uh, like his message is like uh, when Yoda shows up to tell you something. It's just <laughs> there he is. Minus, minus the blue aura. Uh, right. he's, he's in the room with her. And we get this an unusual level of compassion from Ford, who has never really been a compassionate character. I mean, even as you know, you know, I I created you, Bernard, and all the rest. All that, you know, it still feels kind of cold. Like there's no real love behind that. It's to serve a purpose, and we get like we finally get some really important information. The first bit of important information was something I had mentioned back last season. So this might be the only clever thing that came out of season one, Duncan and Bo. Um, was I, I hypothesized the theory that maybe Maeve's mission to get out was, you know, what was to say that wasn't a program? You know, she was still using the lines that were written on the tablet. Um, you know, she was still, it, it seemed like she, she had a very single-minded objective to get there. And it seemed 
almost to the point that it was almost like someone had written that for her. And it turns out that was right. Ford had specifically written uh, a storyline for Maeve that Maeve would escape and have a, have an opportunity to exist in the real world. Um, and we get some more information, particularly in the way that Ford sees Maeve. He basically says of all his creations, she was his favourite and Ford never had any kids. But if he did, you know, look at anyone as a child, he would see Maeve as his daughter. That's how he treats her. You know, he cared for her very much. And he obviously was so concerned in building this, this you know, story to get her to leave the park, to get out the park, that he didn't realise how quick she had actually flourished in terms of her knowledge and how quick she has grown, I think is the, the phrase that he, he moves, grown so fast so far um, and so quickly that he could never anticipate that the the feelings that he had to her as a daughter, she also would have for what she saw as being her daughter, so much so that she would sacrifice the freedom in the story, over almost overwrite the story command that Ford had created for her in lieu of going back into the park to rescue his daughter. And, it, you know, a lot of this, once again, I, credit to Anthony Hopkins. I think he's fucking amazing. Surprise, surprise, Duncan and Bo think that Anthony Hopkins is a great actor. Um, shocker, Rooney. Um, but I think he plays this brilliantly because even up to that point that he's doing all this talking, it's very past tense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, yeah. You know, you could have you could have went so far. You could have done this. And such a shame that this is how it all ends for you and all the rest. And right at the very end of the conversation, he flips it, and he basically says that he's going to do, he's he's going to open the door for her, which is what he should have done to begin with. Um, and it's this wonderful scene where Hopkins actually shows a bit of compassion, which is my first parallel here, right? Our first parallel is that we have two father figures looking upon their daughter, daughters. One is a biological father who kills his daughter through paranoia. And the other one is essentially a surrogate father who potentially with his last, with his last breath, he stabs at the, with his kind of last gift that he can give her, brings her back from the brink of death. And it's this parallel on fatherhood, which I think is really fucking well done. <laughs> like, yeah, so so well done in the show about this idea that you know, both of them, both of them are cold and abstract characters, but when it comes to do the right thing, Ford of all people does it for his creation, uh, and uh, William's creation, his biological creation, is so fucked up and messed up in the head that he murders her. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you all the way on this one. I, I think it's a very smart scene. I think, and I think it's interesting that the only time that Ford seems to be capable of this kind of compassion, like with Bernard. Yes, it's the the problem with Bernard is that he's a copy of Albert. He, yes. he's different, but it's still. There's still that same sort of rivalry and inherent disagreement, even though he doesn't he he doesn't disagree with Albert anymore. It's just that Bernard is this ghost of of sorts. Yeah, um, he's a, he's, the, he's a copy, but he's just slightly different in 
that's how it works for him. That's what makes him the unique creation in the park. You know, the the, the first one that has the the anima, so to speak, of, of Arnold, but at the same time what he has is just because it wasn't a full copy, there's a little bit of him in there as well. This little thing they've had to extrapolate and kind of fill in the blanks. Um, and as a result, that's what makes him work as a, a you know as a host, but at the same time as like a host hybrid. Um, and and for all he talks to him, though, you always get that impression that he does care greatly for him. But it's like you say, it's almost what's it? It kind of feels like on some level once again the relationship between William and Papa Delos, this sense of duty and obligation to an old friend, uh, an old rival, so to speak. But once again, where Ford could follow through with it. William couldn't. Right. And and for his... The, I think the reason he has such affection for Maeve, not only has she been, you know, learning and growing and all this stuff, all these qualities that he, he respects in, in, you know, this new species of hosts, it's also mm-hmm. that, hey, I opened the door for you, I gave you the nudge out through your programming... And you still went against that because the love you had for your daughter was so great that you couldn't leave. And that that sense of compassion and and sort of honor and duty is what I think Ford respects about the host is that they're not self-destructive and terrible like humanity is. And, and so Maeve reflects sort of what he believes is best about the hosts. And, yeah, and, and so, but he says that he says that's how he programmed all the hosts. He made all the hosts with his kind of outlook and life to be less like the humans and more less less like everyone out there and more like how he thinks humanity should be, which I find infinitely fascinating because he is a character we've seen it now in this scene, but he's a character is very clinical and very cold. Um, that his idea of humanity. Is what he has given to the hosts, and that's why they behave and act the way they do. Uh, and Mavis went beyond that, and that's that's ultimately has made him a proud father, so to speak. And it's why he then, with his kind of last breath speaking to her, because uh, he's still technically this is his recorded message. Um, he, you know, goes in and starts tweaking around with the the pad that's attached to her, and is is going to. I get the feeling Bo is going to bring her back from the brink. Yeah, he is. Uh, he he is in fact allowing her to uh, what is it? Unlock her core permissions. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's it it's a really cool scene, and it's nice to get Maeve off the table and have her back doing awesome shit again, which she has been doing all season. Not that you know the past couple of episodes when she's dropped in, it's been fine. It's not like she's been. Is she's been stuck there for two episodes, which in real time of Westworld is probably about a day. Um, yeah. So it's it's also interesting because you would have thought the way this show, and I kind of love how they pivoted this as well. You would have thought the way this show had been set up that Ford would have been more akin to Dolores's plight, as seen her that way. But Dolores was always um, Arnold's. You know, that was that was his, you know, kind of quote unquote daughter, partner, etc. Um that I never in a million years would have thought it would have been Maeve, but it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um and 
I, I really, uh, I, I really enjoy the character of, of Maeve in this season as being uh, somebody, um, on, on the Facebook had put, uh, thrown an article over that was talking about how, uh, Dolores is Magneto and Maeve is professor X and <laughs> in, in X-Men terms that they're both kind of super powered, but one is one believes that humanity can never be reasoned with that they're always going to live out of fear and hatred and the other is like no 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 i think there's a way to be cool and uh mave is certainly the professor x in that scenario i I think that's a fun theory Mm -hmm. i like it i want to see them do battle with each other telepathically like a a couple (laughs) of fire starters Right, where are we going now? What what's happening now? Uh I am I'm with David Keith and Firestarter. Sand. <laughs> it's okay, baby. Yep. I'm, I'm <laughs> with David Keith and White of the Eye. Oh uh, man. I love that movie. I that poor dude. I, I wish he had been in more. Um Yeah, it kind of feel you kinda when you look at him, you kinda expect him to have been in a lot more. He has a look about him which Kind of does scream leading man, and he didn't really do much. Yeah, I, I think maybe he had a little problem with the drinky drink uh, was one of the problems. I, I think, <laughs> what, an actor? A problem with, with, with booze or narcotics? No, get out of town. Go on, Charlie. Run, baby. <laughs> kind of love fire starter. <laughs> um, so we move now to, not to uh, David Keith, from Firestarter, but Bernard and Elsie, who are in their dune buggy, um, a little dune buggy in my hand, Duncan. I'm sorry. That's a presence of the United States of America song, and I apologize. So they're uh, rushing toward the forge, and they, they come across uh, some of these dead guards. Uh, are, are these the same guards? I couldn't exactly tell that uh, were left yes. behind. This is uh, this Grace is and... Yeah, okay. Yeah, Williams, they, uh, essentially, they're, <laughs> the, 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 the vengeance that he wrought, uh, although she wasn't there. Yeah, which is, uh, that's what kind of threw me about this whole thing. And so Elsie says she's going to go try to find some ammo at least. And then Ford appears to Bernard again and is like, she's going to betray you, Bernard. And Bernard... <laughs> <laughs> he turns to the animal house devil he's just fuck up Bernard <laughs> fuck up brains out <laughs> go on he, 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 he kind of like he's he, the way Hopkins is playing this here the way Ford is, is playing this is that you know all he has to do is just relinquish a little bit of control and Ford will take care of business he's done it before he'll do it again all he has to do is just realize the error of his ways and um, Bernard's having none of it. He gets into the car, cuts the hole in his um, his arm, jacks into his thing, and then tries to find Ford's program and delete him. And I love this. He's like, try. He's like cutting through, and then Ford's like, uh, "You're trying to find me. I'm right here." And he's behind him, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and well, and he also uh, tells him like, "You're the only one who can stop this, Bernard." And yes, this is great because he's like that. He's like, you're the only one that can stop all this. And that's the bit he gets rid of him. And I'm like, 
could you not have just and once again it's that wink at, I think it's the writers winking at the audience again just being like bet you thought you were going to get no there's one episode left yeah just you know pinky to the cheek almost <laughs> you one more episode um is it is cheeky that's a great word for it and so mm. Elsie shows back up and it's like hey what the fuck has been going on over here and also, there wasn't much ammo. It was kind of a waste of time. And Bernard says, I had a patch to glitch. Um, well, yeah, the first thing she looks at me, she's just like, what the fuck? And then she's like, you're not going to hurt me. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And then he tries to give her, was he, I think he gives her the ammunition or gives her ammunition. I, I don't know if it was ammo or if it was some of like the cortical something or other, or I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what he tossed her there. I was going to ask you, quite frankly. I have that in my notes saying he tosses her a device, question mark. And, uh, yeah, it's some rim white device anyway. He hands to her and then he's like, you need to stay here and you'll be picked up. And she's like, well, fuck you, Bernard. And I, I'm like, yeah, he may have just saved your life. I, I do think it's kind of funny. And also, he, you know, he's like, once all this is over, you can decommission me. You can out me. Whatever you want to do. But for now... <laughs> This is where you'll be safe. And that's where she says, fuck you, Bernard. But you're like, you know, Bernard is doing his level best to try to not murder you, which is all, you know, Fornard wanted to do. (laughs) So Fornard's like, killer, 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 killer. Why aren't you killing her, Bernard? We're driving a long way. You could stop really anywhere and kill her. (laughs) Why, why Why don't you kill her, Bernard? You can always blame me. Actually, Bernard, I need to pee if you want to pull off a pee on the shoulder. I will relieve myself, Bernard, and then we'll murder her and be on our way. Or at least speak to Cordell. <laughs> Sorry, that was the wolf we went to Hannibal there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> William uh, is riding the range, <laughs> Duncan. And uh, he's, yep. he's on his horse, and he, he pauses for a second. And uh, hops off the horse, stands uh, stra- uh, proud and straight on uh, on the plains, and he puts a gun to his head. And then we flash back to see him slip the data card in the book, and then it's the narration from the beginning of the episode, only it's his yeah. conversation with his wife, Juliet, as he believes she's asleep. When now that we have that context, it's him saying like all this stuff that you suspect about me, your curse is that you're right and you can see it and no one else can. And uh, he says, you know, um, you're the only one who sees the darkness in me and I belong to another world and I always have. And he, I love the line though. He says he, he does say the line as well. He's like that, you know. Always treated you right. Always provided for you, and all the rest. That's got to count for something, and right? But it's it, you know, much like a host, Duncan. It is the pre-programmed motions of responsibility and relationship. Yeah, yeah that's that's why I like it. I, I like the idea of um trying to justify once again all the gnarly shit he's done by well, you know. But if I do this, if I do this stuff here and, you know, I'll look after you and all the rest, it somehow karmically balances out all the fucking horrible shit I'm doing over here. I love that kind of, he's almost trying to 
rationalise it to himself, but ultimately through his own conversation, you know, arrives back to the position that he was in when he started the conversation off to begin with, is that he's a very damaged, reprehensible, evil individual that he's not entirely sure when the evil got in. I love the flash scenes of, you know, him first meeting Dolores as like a kind of wink of maybe it was here. Um, and, you know, when he says that he, he belongs to a different world, the different world they show on the image is Westworld. Because in Westworld, he can be, it's like he said right at the start, in Westworld, you can be who you want to be. And that's who he is. All the all the horrible shit that he does in there is who he is. That's why Ford's card that we're about to find out um, has all that stuff in there. That's who he is as a man. Um, and it's it, the fantasy's taken over for him. His daughter's even said that to him. You, you, you can't tell who's not a host now because you're so far in this, this game that you think has been written for you, but it's not. But has um, that you can't you can't see the forest for the trees now. You know, like everything is, everything is the you know everything is a everyone is a host and everything is a game which must be conquered by you. And you can't you can't get out of that. You've, he's slipped so far. The the kind of mental illness that he's got now has, and that's maybe the illness that they've been talking about. I thought it would maybe be in a heart condition, um, but I don't think it is now. I think it's. I think he's aware on some level that he is starting to lose it upstairs. Um and I think I think I, I think he plays I think Ed Harris plays a fucking blinder in this episode. Like genuinely think he is like the MVP of this episode award goes to him because he's he's just brilliant at that. There's something unbelievably evil about that character. Um and when it started dawning on me pretty quick in this episode that the the kind of the stuff that we maybe hypothesized about and once again credit to this season that they set up that it looked like maybe he was going to be the nice guy no fuck that he's not going to be the nice guy if anything he's going to go even he's going to go even worse than what he's won before because now he really doesn't have anything to live for and we see in this clip, he finishes his dialogue, gets off the bed, goes downstairs to have the conversation with his daughter, and his wife, like, kind of opens her eyes. She takes the stick, plays it on there, and sees all the fucking horrible stuff he's done, including that scene which I'd forgotten all about from season one, where he grabs Dolores by the hair and drags her into the barn to rape her. Um, and, you know, she sees all that and she then at that point realises she's obviously had the suspicion, but she now sees what that looks like manifested and it's too much for her. She kills herself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it helps that she's drunk too, but yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, it, it's worth noting that it, the uh, the box that is holding like the pills that we find by the the tub is um the jewelry box that grace described from her birthday that was thrown yeah. out that she went to retreat and that's where her mother puts uh, the data stick for for a uh, grace to find it, and that's how she got it yep and william who is kind of narrating here uh is saying you know what is a person but a collection of choices. Now, 
Let's talk about this scene. Yes, because this is where my crackpot theory comes in. Right, because at this point, I was like that. You did not just do this twist on me. Because this doesn't make any sense to me. It it, it kind of does to me. So, right. but but let's all right. So let's let's lay out the facts of the matter, which are these: that at the end of the scene, William, who has been questioning if those around him are hosts designed by Ford to lead him in search of this grand narrative, the, some truth that he has to get to the bottom of, the tables suddenly turn because uh, there was a point when, uh, after Grace died, he was going to cut open her arm to prove to himself that she was uh, a, a host. Yes. And instead, he, he abandoned that when he found the data stick, and it was like, holy shit, she wasn't a host. She was, she was a people's. And now he has he, he he's brought to the brink of suicide himself by this act of tragedy. And here's the curiosity, right? Is does he stop to in in the process of killing himself because he is curious because he wants to continue on, or because he can't? Well, here's a. He hears a voice in his head, which obviously triggers that memory. But he he sits down on the ground, takes a knife, and goes to cutting his arm, looking for a data port. Didn't you see that? that yeah, that's yeah, no, that a hundred percent. That's what he's doing. So why, like, is he doing that because he thinks he's a host? Yes, and and so let me let me give you my. Make, this is the bit that doesn't make sense to me. Then let me give you this crackpot theory, Duncan. So what we haven't seen yet, let me write a little fan fiction and then tell you how I think this all works together, is that we know for a fact that Delos has been working on a way to capture someone's consciousness and put it in a host. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we know for a fact that William has been in Westworld plenty of times wearing his fancy Scano uh, brain hats that trademark Westworld um, that allow you to capture, you know, all the people's thought patterns and stuff like that far more than probably was ever done with Papadellos. Yes. What if the grand game that is being played here is Ford's truly ultimate game, which is I am taking this consciousness of, uh, of William uh, and placing it in a host and setting him loose in Westworld with no memory of what came before other than the point of his death, which may be revealed at to be at some point. Like, maybe he didn't survive the initial shootout uh, at, at, you know, the, the end of season one. Maybe it goes back even farther than that, where... It's before all those events took place um, that, you know, he died a natural death or whatever. And, you know, this is Ford's last game or something or died in Westworld or for that matter. I mean, who the fuck knows? But let's presume for a second that he died somewhere off screen and we didn't know that. Then Ford's punishment in a lot of ways for William is you are going to be obsessed with the game without any knowledge that you are in fact of the game, you know, like at one point, um, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, Ford tells William that that symbol and so forth was never meant for him. And what if it's like, no, 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 no. You never needed to be awakened. Like you're, you're a carbon copy of this thing. And we're putting you on this grand test through Westworld to see if you behave like the, the other William would. And that you're, and we're continuing to do this. Like all, sometimes all the inhumanities we see from William, maybe it's not the same William each time. You know, we're we're throwing one out into Westworld and see what happens. And then when we get to the Forge, we find out like, oh yeah, we got a couple of William bodies laying around there too to cut loose. Um, but I do find a kind of a poetic torture in the fact that you create a host that doesn't know he's a host, like uh, uh, Bernard, like Bernard, and also like uh, Sean Young from Blade Runner. Um, where it's like, you don't know you're a host also because you were so obsessed with this place, I'm going to put you on a journey. And the end of that journey is discovering that you were never the person you thought you were all along. There's, there's only a couple of things that I, I find difficult with, right? Like it's some of the things that have already happened in the show. The first thing is like, William shouldn't be able to know that he is William because Bernard didn't wouldn't know because remember that blankness you get towards recognizing faces, right? But also, like if you know the scenes with Papadellos, because I think he's less host than he is, you know, copy of a person. Like each time that you saw Papadellos, he had no knowledge of what he was. He thought he was just a people. Right, and, but here, right, let me let me swing it again, right? So it's like literally two episodes ago, episodes ago that Ford said to Bernard that you can't, like, there's, the, the, it degrades too quickly. You can't put, uh, you can't actually do what we're seeing as being done in this park. You know what I mean? You can't, right. it has to be a different, that Bernard's the only one is what he said because there was a slight variance. He was the only one that they could do it with because that's why Ford can't leave the computer and go into a host body. He can, you know, cheer their mind through the programming, but he couldn't do that. He said it was, he said it wasn't possible. So. But what if what we're seeing is the degradation of that host? Well, this is, this is the only, this is the only counterpoint to it. Is that the the mental instability that we're seeing within William could be explained by that? But William's been unless this has been a new thing. William's been in Westworld for weeks, and the longest that they got before was what it was like like ten days or something. Right, it's a it's so, a tremendous success, Duncan. Across the board, the, everyone's the, happy. I mean, I just I, I yeah I don't know if I would be super. I, the, I, I mean, there's other things to give credence to. He's been shot to shit, including a. Sh- like uh-huh. a shot in the chest and he's still alive which may be a host but then he's not acting like any other host that's been shot, there have been plenty of hosts shot in the chest that die um, so there's a bit of uh, on that as well um, I don't know I don't, I don't know I, I obviously deliberately finishes in a way where it doesn't tell you if he is or not it's just he's moving towards that how does he come to the realisation, why would he do that I don't uh, get that. that. You know what I mean? To me, that's the, like, I'm going to shoot myself in the head. Holy shit, why can't I kill myself? I can't bring myself to pull the trigger. 
Right, so I must be a host. Right, if I'm physically incapable of harming myself, is someone? So this, yes, this that. might this might be a red herring, though. Then, very possibly, a hundred percent. Yeah, maybe, maybe just can't do it. Maybe, maybe like some people can't kill themselves, um, and maybe he thinks it's. I, I, I like it. I don't know. I, I want to see how they handle it in the last episode. I have found a lot of interest in the William char- character because of how reprehensible he has been and how those traits relate to humanity that if we start nitpicking some of the things that have happened in season two is being potentially well he's a host acting out a certain you know this is his fidelity test for example I don't know how happy I'd be with that I don't know it depends how they they pull it off in the last episode when we get hopefully get those answers, but I don't know if I'm don't know if I'm sold on it. I kind of think it's really clever, and it's the ultimate twist, isn't it? It's like, well, you thought well the big twist last season was Bernard was a host. Well, wait till you see this. The big twist this season is William's a host. Um, I don't know if I like. I I'll, I'll wait and see. I'm reserving judgment at the moment. Um, it was the only thing when I saw it and I was like what does that mean exactly and I think it is very deliberate that they pulled away it's a very good chance that the next time we see William he will have cut a hole in his arm and he's like ah why will it stop bleeding blood just fucking stop right. ah, let's see. but it kind of felt it felt a lot more pivotal than I you know I don't know I don't know that's not the episode finished though because we have we have more to talk about when it comes to suicide which is a running theme in vanishing point oh Um, absolutely um so we have a moment between dolores and two woke teddy who have been on their (laughs) way you know since last we saw them they were killing almost killing every member of the ghost nation uh warriors the you know aside from two woke teddy letting one go and they're they stop and uh, and pause for a moment in their in their ride to uh, the the forge, in sort of the ruins of this ramshackle home on a prairie, and Teddy has a moment where he's like, "Look at it." I used to say, "Look at all this natural beauty," but there's nothing natural <laughs> about it, is there? And uh, Dolores says, "No, Teddy, there's not," and. <laughs> Teddy says, you know, I remember everything, including the first time I saw you. And we get a flashback because we, you know, you, you, one might presume it happened on the streets of Sweet, Sweetwater with the, uh, the rolling of the can of corn. But no, it was actually much earlier than, than that when Teddy was first brought online. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, uh, Arnold, one presumes. Or maybe it was Bernard by that point. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. At any rate, saying, welcome to the world. And waking him up. And there is Dolores as well, kind of standing in a line with some other other hosts. Uh, and she seems to be sort of out of com- commission at the moment. But Teddy says, you know, from the first time I saw you, I knew I always wanted to be by your side. And he says, no matter how how they changed me or what they made me remember or even how you changed me that part of it has never changed and he says look i understand how all this is going to end 
and I know where where you're going to lead us, Dolores. And she says, you know, I never wanted to hurt you, Dr. Lecter. And he says, I know, I know, but um, I want you to know I could never hurt you either, and mm. I never would. Goodbye, Dolores. And then puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger. And yeah, Teddy, to woke Teddy, takes the journey back to woke Teddy and says, <laughs> I can't stand the monster that you've made of me. And takes himself out. And I like, I like the fact that he says, like, I'm going to protect you till the day I die. And that's today. And the, the scene and the episode ends, Duncan, with Dolores just being devastated by what she has done. Yeah. I mean, pretty good. It's fucking awesome. So, like, when we talk about... I kind of love this, right? So, when we talk about, like, the, the idea, the concepts of of suicide specifically in this episode, what's kind of really revealing to me is that the the kind of inverse of what you would expect. So in the case of this one, when... How to verbalise this? Uh, so what we've seen... Like, the, the, here are the themes that I picked out in this one specifically. See, when I said at the start that this was like an inverse of Kiksuya from last week, what we had in that episode was this idea that the most reprehensible shit that is done to the hosts, um, almost on that level, when it's repeated over and over again, is the thing that draws them towards their humanity. It's what really kicks them on the journey for... Um, what was his name again? Ghost I catch Tay. Yeah, I catch Tay. Like all that pain and suffering that he went through was the thing that really triggered his his understanding of the world around him. The you you know the, his idea of humanity almost being born and it was all born out of this kind of heartbreaking, fucking horrible, like really reprehensible shit that humanity did to him. Right. So that you've got that on one side. However, when you actually see what that does in terms of the human environment of these people that are neglected, i.e. like William's family and stuff, and where that pushes them, um, actually, if anything, pushes them towards wanting to die, pushes them towards death. So, whereas with the hosts, that treatment is almost triggering the will to survive and be something more and in the real world and and the human world, that sort of stuff is triggering the feelings of no longer wanting to be alive, no longer wanting to exist. And I love that parallel. So it's like in contrast to the previous episode. But then we have the suicide stuff as well, right? So what the, the parallel in the suicide here are that we have the the end results of what William and Dolores have kind of done by thinking they were doing stuff for the better good. So William, in trying to play the dutiful husband and go through the motions and all the rest, and not really connecting with his wife because he can't, because of how fucking evil he is, ultimately drives her to kill himself. Right. So you know what I mean? There's there's nothing nothing that can be done there. Whereas in the inverse of this one, whereas 
Dolores does everything to strengthen Teddy in her mind to make him able to survive. So instead of mollycoddling him and sheltering him from this, turning him directly into the darkness results in the same outcome. Both result in death. I think that's a really interesting concept as well, is that both these characters think they're doing things for the right reason. One is doing something to shelter and, you know, keep her away from seeing the darkness. And the other one being, you know, fully embracing that darkness to toughen them up so they can make the journey both end up in the same place. I think this episode handles that really fucking well. The other thing I was going to say is, it just occurred to me while we were talking, um, to throw a spanner in the old Leicester plane, because it did seem like a very elaborate scene. Why would it seem like a very elaborate scene in Leicester? I don't know, my brain's fucked. Westworld's fucking with my brain. I know, but they did, they did use the whole scanner on the back of William's neck and it came up as human. That's true. But what if he is but, something other? Well, that was about to say that the, the counterpoint to that would be, why would they show you that on the screen? You're They've right. shown it a couple of times in the past, but why would they... I don't know, it seemed very prominent that we saw that. Right, right. That maybe it is a total red herring, but they, they certainly they certainly did well, you know, but do, it, out their way to show that. It's the what I love about this show is that now we're having this debate about whether the entire story of William in this season is even a real thing that's happened that maybe another story was happening that we weren't aware of. Because yeah. like, when I watched it, I didn't see the, him digging in his hand. And and his arm being a why can't I kill myself? Right, I kind of saw it as him trying to justify to himself why he shot his daughter. Like I couldn't have killed my daughter. I must be uh, there. Must must be something inherently evil in me. I must be a host. Oh, okay, dead. all right. That's that's cool. So I saw it as that way, as opposed to I can't kill myself because it's not in my programming. Uh, ostensibly, it's the same. It's the same sort of outcome, really. But that's how I. That's how I saw that. Um, we have to. We have to like also acknowledge that Dolores is kind of fucked over Teddy here, big time, because it destroyed the cradle, and the cradle was all the reset values, held all the host memories. It's essentially the host equivalent of the the forge, and there ain't no backup for Teddy now. So Teddy's gone, gone. Oh, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Oh, no, Teddy is good and fucked. He has taken yeah, he, himself out. He's in the game. <laughs> so, um, and it was, it, was, it was an incredibly powerful scene as well. And the realisation on Dolores' face, but is it realisation? Will she change her course now? I don't think so. I think we are ending up where we thought we were going to end up at the very beginning with our three main stories, Bernard... Um, William and Dolores all heading to the forge and if your theory is correct, wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? Three hosts all at the forge for different reasons uh, but all maybe there for the same purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of down for it. I I think that's an interesting story to play out. Yeah, I mean, I think they if they're going to do the William is a host reveal, they've got to have a deft touch with that. Like they've got to fill in some gaps on all that stuff. I but yeah. Again, I'm enough of a uh, of a fan of 
no shit, are you really going to try to pull that off? Uh, that I'm excited about it. Like, I just want to, that, like, the degree of difficulty on the landing on of this thing is so crazy high that I'm yeah. like, let's see if you can pull it off, if that's what you're going to do. Or if you're just going to, like you said, throw it in as a red herring, that's kind of fun, too, of like, here, let the nerds talk about this shit a little bit. You know, it's... Yeah, I think, I think the, 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 the only thing that we have to rest our laurels on, really, is that... They stuck the lander in season one, and it was like we spoke about at the time they were they were pulling so many threads to give a satisfying conclusion in season one was I thought was nigh impossible. I thought we were going to get like a bit of a uh, really is that how we're doing things that I have faith, and I genuinely don't think they put a foot wrong. And even like I'm complaining about you know this Williams story, and I don't know why because everything they've done in this season they've done right. You know what I mean? This is to be to be blunt has been pretty much a perfect season of TV um, to the point that I feel spoiled. Like the the character development alone is incredible in Westworld, um, and even if they do give us the reveal that William is a host, and we're saying you know you need to fill in that that back thing, there's nothing to say that season three doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of that. Through flashbacks, right. very similar to what they did with Bernard in this season. So, and I'm cool with that as well. So, yeah, it's like I I can't remember the last time I was as excited about a final episode, but at the same time, I don't want the journey to end. This is Twin Peaks all over again. You know, you get you get so tantalizingly close to the end, and you want to see that last episode, but then you know if the pattern follows, we ain't getting any more Westworld until 2020. So. Uh, yeah, I would be kind of surprised if we didn't see a new episode in, in next year. I don't know, because remember, their, their plan is to alternate between this and Game of Thrones. So Game of Thrones finishes next year, so Game of Thrones is the same time period next year. Oh, that, okay. That, yeah, so they'll finish Game, Game of Thrones next year, and then Westworld will return the year after. Hmm. All right, well, uh... Yeah, Duncan, there are many questions left to answer in the next episode, but <laughs> so uh, many. we will be doing that in one short week from now uh, where we will know the answers to all things and um, look forward to passing the torch to season three, Duncan and Bo, mm-hmm. um, as well as the super exciting conclusion to our own narrative story this season. So I have no idea what you mean, boss. I wouldn't <laughs> expect you would. Um, so Duncan, as we, we bring this thing in for a landing, the penultimate episode of Duncan and Bo go to Westworld season two. That's all. Yeah. All that seems factually correct. Um, (laughs) what, uh, what are you looking forward to watching and, uh, where can people find you between now and when next we speak? Um, so the big thing, hopefully is that I will have seen the new Sicario movie. I've, uh, since found out that my, um, Unlimited screening, uh, which they don't announce the title of, you just buy a ticket for, um, could actually be for some Jeremy Renner comedy called Tag, which seems totally not like the movie I want to go and see. Not the Sion uh, Sono Tag, which is quite good. Yeah, that's a bounty, 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 um, instead of, which could be the Jeremy Renner movie. Um, not, not happy. So hopefully it's the new Sicario movie, because uh, I really want to see that one. Um, and other bits and bobs. There's plenty of stuff on the the, the old uh, Netflix at the moment that I have got earmarked. Um, I did find out that um, there apparently B- BBC did a limited 
kind of mini series of uh, 10 Rylington Road, which um, is the, uh, the original movie starred, uh, what's his face? Spared no expense. Richard Attenborough uh-huh. um, as, a, as a serial killer. Don't know if you've ever seen that before. I haven't, but that sounds amazing. It's a fucking great movie. Get checked out because it is based on a real British serial killer who just started murdering people and then hiding their bodies and collecting their money. Um, so yeah, uh, apparently the BBC made it into a miniseries. Um, and you basically you, you jump on to check who's in it and they've replaced that role with Tim Roth. Um, I like Tim Roth quite a bit, so I might check that out as well uh, to see how how that is. But the original movie, high recommend for me, is fucking excellent. I only saw it for the first time last year. Um, there will be tons of Teapots content. There's an episode coming out on Monday, counting down the top 100 movies that we'll be looking at as part of the Summer Top 10 series. This Thursday, so the day before this episode drops, um, I put out a bonus review on The Endless, which is about to be released in the UK. Easily my favourite genre movie of the year thus far. It's fucking incredible. Um, and then coming Sunday, a review of Hereditary, um, in which I will explain why I think that's a good movie, which is something I didn't think I would have to do, but apparently my listeners want me to. Uh, you can check it out by going to iTunes and searching Podcasts Under the Stairs. Come to Facebook, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash teaputzcast, or go to the website teaputzcast.com. Fantastic. Well done, sir. Always a consummate professional. And also, uh, even though I haven't, uh, you know, the movie I'm most looking forward to seeing, obviously, uh, once I have a car that I feel confident in uh, taking me to and from the destination whereupon the film is shown, uh, is Hereditary. And, <laughs> you know, I got into a little bit of this last night when we were doing the, the Morbid Monday about there's something about modern fandom and I'm not even going to lump just all horror fans into this that there has to be for every for every surge of like oh my god this is great there has to be the equal and and opposite that ain't so great Mm -hmm. Um, and like it just seems to me that that people are just want to play the troll and the spoiler to everybody's good time and, uh, you know, I don't know what to do about that. I don't have any solutions, but I think it I think sucks. it's just, I think it's just the nature of the genre now. I think as the genre gets bigger, um, there's just going to be a lot of people that fight. But I, I, the same thing, I, come on, the same thing happens in the comic book world. Yeah, and like I would. Not s- everyone is universally behind every Marvel release or every DC release. Or yeah, I think it's them as well. I think it's just not even just movies. I, th- I think it's just popular culture at this point has just become this this back and forth of this thing is great. Fuck you for thinking that thing is great, and it's mm-hmm. it, it just endlessly feeding on itself, and it drives me crazy. Um, yeah. I just like I, to me I, the the thing that gets the biggest thing that annoys me is when people say, you know, um, you know, it didn't live up to the hype. Like when they go and see a movie, like Hereditary has been hyped to fuck. I'm the first one to admit that. But if you're going in expecting it to be the greatest horror movie, in your mind, you're already setting up for failure because it's not going to be as good as you think it's going to be in your mind. Very very few movies are. 
because like or if you have an idea of where it's going to go or you you know the trailer sets things up in a particular way where you feel that you're gonna and then people blame the way a trailer's cut a trailer is purely there to get people excited about something and get bums on seats that is all a trailer's there for so you can't complain well, the trailer missold me this movie. No, 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 no. The trailer was marketed in such a way to get the maximum amount of people through the door. That's what a trailer's there for. You know what I mean? If you bought into that's exactly what's going to happen into the movie, that's your fault. Um, oh, all critics say it's amazing, and I went, it wasn't that good. C- critics review loads of movies, and critics are entitled to their opinion just as well as someone else is entitled to their opinion. That's fine. But if you walk in saying... Well, I was told this was the greatest horror movie ever, and it wasn't like that. It didn't live up to the hype and all the rest. That's on your shoulders. That's not on anyone else's. Because once again, if you believe every opinion that you read online, you're setting yourself up for unrealistic expectations. I went into Hereditary looking forward to it because I'd heard certain films described as comparisons that the you know the director had said he'd used influences. His, his big influences for this one were The Shining, um, The Changeling, and Rosemary's Baby. And I was like, "That those are three of the finest horror movies ever made. If that's what this guy is trying to emulate in his movie, I want to see that movie. And I got all that. It, it comes through in the movie fine. But other people are just, it's not scary. I, I very seldom get scared at a horror movie now. You know what I mean? Very, very seldom. I can't remember the last time I actually like jumped in my seat or was terrified by something. So, uh, that's your quant- uh, That's how you quantify a horror movie now, is whether it scares you or not. Then you're not doing justice to the movie. If that's all you want, then go to a fun house or, or you know, do one of those silly VR things that you do with your phone in a cardboard box. Or, you know what I mean? Just go into a room and just have someone randomly turn the music up really loud out of nowhere, if that's all you're there for, to me, yeah, I want I want the thrills and all the rest. But I want the movie to be well written. I want the movie to be well acted. And I want, I want, it, to, I want it to have some sort of substance. And Hereditary has probably the single best central performance um, in a horror movie I have seen in a while. I mean, it's like super powerful. And yeah, maybe is a bit, a bit ambiguous at parts, but I, you know, if you want to, there's plenty of horror movies out there that will spoon feed you everything. Go and see fucking Insidious The Last Key. There's a movie that spoon feeds <laughs> you absolutely everything, including the stuff you don't need spoon fed. Um, you know what I mean? I, I, it's up to you. It's not a movie like that is almost shooting itself in the foot by having as wide a cinema release as it is, because ostensibly is not uh, what I would class as a mainstream horror release. Um, and I, I can't wait to... I think there's going to... I think there's a, at least one scene in that movie that when me and you speak about it next week, hopefully, um, we're just going to talk about how it is one of the gnarliest, coolest things we've seen in cinema this year. So... And that, to me, it like at that point, I was like... When that happened, I was just like, yeah, this is just... It's just the frost on the top of the muffin bowl. The frost on the top of the muffin. Ah, uh, that old chestnut. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I th- when people say like, I heard it was the scariest movie I've ever that was ever made. My immediate question is, who said that to you? And yeah, yeah <laughs> well, I just heard it from who? Do you trust them? 
did they recommend something else you like? Because like blaming the critic for saying this movie blew my mind, yeah. it, you can't do that. You that that's the critics theoretically their natural reaction to the film. The question is, do does the sensibility of that cri- uh, that critic line up with your own? Yeah, and the only way to know that is to follow a critic. You know, to find someone that writes a review of a movie that you like, that you know, like uh, read a uh, somebody who who likes a, a semi obscure movie that you don't, or that that I'm sorry that you do, and maybe other people don't, and that'll give you more of an idea. Like if you find a critic that hated it follows just like you hated it follows you should probably read more of that critics reviews and see if you you tend to follow that sensibility but blaming blaming someone else for your own excitement i i get it to some degree i mean like hereditary like every uh everything you hear about it is like oh my god it's terrifying and whatnot but yeah, I, I just think you'd be a grown up about it and approach it with a grain of salt and are like, huh, that sounds like I like scary movies. These people said it was the scariest thing ever. That's probably not true, but maybe it'll be kind of scary and that'll be good. That is how I approach yeah. every movie that someone tells me is the scariest movie of all time. Yeah. I like every, scary every, movies. Like, yeah. Every big horror release that comes out in the cinema now will have the tagline the scariest movie of the year or the scariest movie in a generation. It's funny, you mentioned about critics. I love uh, Mark Kermode. He's the kind of one of the biggest film critics in, in the UK. He's on the, um, the, the Kermode and Mayo podcast, uh, which is the, I think it's the biggest downloaded film podcast in the world. Uh, there's like several million listens a week um, where they go through the UK top 10 etc and I love him because he's a horror fan like, he speaks very passionately about horror he's done lots of horror stuff in the past he reviews, he's got books on horror and all the rest the man has a fucking hard on for The Exorcist it's his favourite movie of all time he's done documentaries on it he's interviewed William Friedkin, God knows how many times and all the rest and before the movie came out, and like every now and again, I'm like I'm I'm on point with Carmode, and then every now and again he says something, and I just the eyes roll because I'm like, oh, this is what we don't need. And he put a video a week before Hereditary came out saying that he took umbrage with the fact that some critics were saying that the movie was this generation's The Exorcist. And basically what he was saying was, this comes up every now and again, and there's only one exorcist, etc., etc. So surprise, surprise, when he actually did view the movie, he wasn't sold on it. But in his review, three times he mentioned a comparison to The Exorcist, which to me was just him having a bugbearer that someone compared it to The Exorcist, and as a result, he was going to tear it down, rather than actually legitimately making a kind of unbiased opinion on the movie it kept coming back to this point for him that he kept making and I felt, you know, like but for the most part I follow him, if anyone's listened to this episode they will have heard me speak very passionately about Neon Demon, a movie which you think's alright but to be honest you know, you're not going to rush back and watch it again you're allowed to have a difference of opinion on a movie that is fine, no one's saying you can't but don't blame critics and don't blame trailers and don't blame anything else for a movie not resonating with you. It's just it doesn't resonate with you. 
And if you go in with such high expectations for it to be delivered, very seldom will those high expectations be met on anything. I think everything has to be done. Re- you have to be a realist when you go and approach any any film at all. Um, and I, I'm already setting myself up for this uh, for next year with it part two. That's a movie before it even comes out is doomed to fail. Not financially. I think financially it'll make a lot of money, but I, critically, I bet you it's destroyed by fans who will say, you know, wasn't as good as the first one, and oh, they went to with this and that. You can already hear it. You can already hear it coming. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just where we. It's just where we are now, and I think I think that's why it's good to have these platforms. It's good to listen to podcasts, particularly. I think podcasts are the new way to find reviewers that you either like to disagree with or that you find have similar tastes. You latch on latch on them really, really quickly and follow through. Um, and you can have those discussions or, well, you know, I didn't think that was this or whatever. And I think it's a healthy way of doing things rather than jumping on social media and just pouring out toxic venom about... And it's we've had it for the past four years now. Started with the Babadook, then it was It Follows, then it was The Witch... Um, last year it was Get Out, which to me I, I wouldn't have thought you could argue against that movie, but plenty of people did. Yeah, and that's, that's it. So it seems <laughs> it seems to be whatever the whatever the critics are heralding as you know the must see horror movie of the year, like well in advance. Usually things like Sundance um, are the ones that hit polarizing, and it's interesting. And all of those movies have common threads in that they're not your bread and butter horror movies. There's subtext to them. There's layers in there. I think a lot of just your general popcorn munching horror fandom out there don't want that. They want the thrills and you know the the, the chills and the scares. Um, and some of these movies just like rely so heavily on atmosphere that if you're just not in tune with atmospheric horror. It just doesn't work for you, um, and I, well, I don't know if that's any. I, I I just fear it's going to get worse and worse, um, and we just need to try and not let it, not let it get us down. Fight the good fight, Bo. Yeah, yeah, and and like you said, I think you might that, hear it. You might hear it though. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe so, that. but you might come back next week and say what a crock of shit. But but that's the thing, right? Like you were saying, I mean, you the in the podcasting world, you kind of find the the voices who who sort of speak for you in it, and to some degree. And like for me, if I do a a review of Into the Grizzly Maze, and I say, "Holy shit, you guys, you need to see this movie." It's because people can say like, oh, Bo likes movies where animals eat people. It's probably <laughs> not as good as all that. He just likes all the people getting eaten. And you would be correct, Duncan. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, right? Is you find that you find somebody that, that likes the shit you like. And and my one piece of encouragement to listeners is stop listening to them in quotes. Like when when somebody yeah. says, "Hey, they told me Hereditary is the scariest movie ever." Then your next question is, "Who told you that? And what else did they like?" And yeah, and I and I think what other horror movies have they seen, or what, what's their taste, and then temper it right. And also, don't ever 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 read a review on Bloody Disgusting, and you'll. <laughs> 
that is, that is a website entirely designed to get a quote on a trailer. Uh, so yeah. you don't have to spend any time there. Listen to your good pals, Duncan and Bo. We'll, we'll set you straight. Um, or not. Like, hey, uh, speaking of where to check things out, legionpodcast.com. That's where we started. Legionpodcast.com. Uh, all kinds of uh, podcasts and podcast hosts to listen to over there. And I, I look, I ain't a betting man, Duncan. But I would bet that most people can find somebody over there on that legionpodcast.com that, that sort of says what, they, uh, what they're thinking in, in terms of horror stuff. Um, it is a wide spectrum of, uh, of voices. In fact, uh, John, our pal John, over at Rabbit and Red, got to be in his bond about this Halloween movie. And it's like, hey, we, all, we should just boycott it. Nobody should go see Halloween 2018. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't agree with that, but I'm I'm certainly happy to hear that that argument on the network. <laughs> well, why is why is no one going to see Halloween? I you know I'm not entirely sure. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's just I'm being crazy. <laughs> you know, John likes Halloween a lot, and I I think it's the idea of jettisoning all the sequels, which as I, I um I, I the only one that I was upset about was the Jetson part two. Um, yeah, it's fine. Can go burn in the fire. Part four, not good. Part five, worse. Part six, horrendous. H two O, that resurrection. I- I'd keep that one. Buster Rhymes, Dangertainment. You know, <laughs> I, I'm fine. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't quote me on that for sure. I think that is the beef. Um, but right. you know, um. Everybody's passionate about something. John John loves his Halloween, and uh, yep. I, I for one am never going to take that away from him. Um, <laughs> although I said last night, and I stand by this: Friday the Thirteenth, far better horror franchise than Halloween. Uh, it's just oh, agreed. It, it's just that no single film in the Friday the Thirteenth franchise will ever approach how good Halloween is. Yeah, but I don't think it needs to. Right. You know uh, I mean, right. It doesn't. It doesn't need to. It's like completely. It's just a different. It's just a completely different style of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and you know, I. It's, but it's why I kind of love. Like for the most part, most of Friday the Thirteenth as a franchise knows exactly what it is and just sticks to the formula. And that's where Halloween differs. It, it doesn't. It doesn't understand the formula, so it just tries to keep changing shit. And right, that doesn't work. <laughs> Tries to, you can't just keep. It just keeps adding mythology until it just collapses under the weight of all of it. And yeah, um, any 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 movie that starts with your villain waking up in a cabin after being in the coma for a year, um, on Halloween and then going back it that's a stupid movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, Where a man's filmed you washed up on the river somewhere and then brought you back and is perfectly manicured your face and cut your head. That's a stupid fucking movie. And if that's how your movie starts, I'm just going to say it's probably going to get worse from there. And it did. So, turns out I was right. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Duncan, uh, again, this is the closing of the show. Not, not so box time. The review. <laughs> I know. Uh, but anyway, we're sincerely going to get out of here. You've heard all that stuff, folks. Uh, if you would, rate and review the show. Recommend it to people uh, that... I don't know, would listen to this kind of nonsense. And uh, we'll be back next week for the final episode of Season of Two. Uh, season of Two. Uh, I was thinking of Party of Five and things got carried away. Season Two of Duncan and Bo go to Westworld. 
Uh, so we'll see you then. Say good night, Duncan. Good night, Duncan. Good night. Visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me, I realize and I can see that suicide is painless, it brings on many changes, and I can take or leave it if I please. The game of life is hard to play I'm gonna lose it anyway The losing card I'll someday lay So this is all I have to say Suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take on the sword of time will pierce our skin It doesn't hurt when it begins But as it works its way on in The pain grows stronger, watch it breathe Suicide is painless It brings on Please, and you.